God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change those things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Our speaker is from coming from Rolling Hills, North New Mexico, speaking at the 51st South Cal Convention in San Diego in 2001. Enjoy Annie D, please. Oops. Everybody. My name is Annie Daniels, and I'm an alcoholic. And um, <laughs> I'd like to thank the committee for uh, asking me to speak tonight, for the courage, I guess, especially after eating. And um, I, um, it really is an honor and a privilege to um, participate in other, with others in the common solution we have here. I, um, it's really great to see a lot of people from my old home group, uh, Bellflower Big Book Group. We were there 10 or 12 years. <laughs> it's great to see a lot of old friends. See, now, if I drank, this would be the time. <laughs> this is uh, exactly the time. Uh, Thing is I wouldn't have this dress on after about 10 minutes and I and I wouldn't be standing down here I'd be up there so like my sponsor says think it through girl so uh, I, I'd really like to, to welcome the newcomers I uh, I think it's wonderful that you're here I, I think it's a little bit probably scary, too, and overwhelming if this is your first meeting or one of your first meetings, but I just hope you stay while you're here. I, uh, hang in there, Tim. I, um, when I was new, I clearly remember sitting in the front row of the meeting, whatever meeting it was at my home group, wherever that was. I was in a fog for a long time. But I remember clearly sitting there, and I knew I had uh, 20 or 30 stitches through my scalp and uh, two black eyes. Um, I had a weird taste in my mouth for months, and uh, I didn't smell that great. I had on my last pair of jeans, which really belonged to my brother, who was 11 years younger. I had no idea where most of my clothes were. And uh, I was bruised and battered, but I was the happiest I had been in a long, long time. Because uh, for some reason, unbeknownst to, to me, well, through a series of events that I'll soon tell you about, I, I had uh, somehow become willing to do whatever it took. And my battle cry had always been, number one, my case is different, and number two, but you don't understand. You know, it was so terminally unique. And... Um, that was the story of my life, and um, I went from there to sitting in the front row of that meeting, and I was just so grateful to be sober, and um, I'm still grateful today, and I hope I never forget what that, that was like. Um, I, uh, I got to tell you, I, I was never right. I, um, I come from a really nice family, a, a good uh, alcoholic family, normal, um, nice people. My uh, father is a professor, retired, and he is uh, brilliant. And my mother's quite, 
quite educated too. We're all college graduates. Go figure that one. I'm a good cheater, but um, uh, we, he's a professor, and, and later in life, my dad decided to go back to school and get uh, his second or third PhD, and, and I also come from a long line of um, ministers and um, very religious scholarly people, and, and in this church, the way I grew up, um, it, it wasn't okay to drink, my dad would say. You know, the scriptures as we see them, will show you that as they do at church, it's really not okay to drink. But I have this keen intellectual understanding of it, and I think really it's okay in my case as long as we don't tell anybody. And um, I so understand that. You know, uh, he was protecting his right to drink, and um, he could explain anything away. I have uh, my mother uh, grew as we do to protect him and, and never, you know, just well protected his drinking. Um, our, the alcoholism in my home was like having a huge pink elephant in the middle of, of the living room. Uh, you know, it, you do not talk about it. In fact, you don't talk about anything negative. If you're not talking about it, it doesn't exist. And that's the way it was in my house. Um, I have a older sister who uh, could care less about drinking. Um, and my little brother is a was is 11 years younger, like I said before, and he he's not a drinker either. They're they're both kind of brainiacs, and um, uh, then there's me. <laughs> and my first memories of uh, that I have at all really are fear are surrounded with fear. All I remember is being just fearful of everybody, everything from an early age. And my mother always would say, you know, she just ain't right, that one. She's uh, she's a little off. She's, uh, I don't know, she's so insecure, but she says, but I just give her a lot of extra love. You know, she intuitively knew to do that. And when they let me off to go to school that first day, I was not just uh, scared, but I just can't explain the, the terror. I remember it today. And I, it was all that self-centered fear talks about in the book from an early age. I mean, I had it from the get-go. I needed a, I needed some uh, vodka in that thermos that first uh, year. I, um, I could not. I just knew I looked wrong. I had the wrong thing on. I had the wrong thing in my lunch. And I was terrified. And um, that's just that those are my memories. I mean, I had a great childhood, a lot of fun. Um that uh, we just kept stepping over that elephant at home, and 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 we went along fine. And uh, there was a lot of love in my family. I could not stand that father of mine, though. Uh, I just couldn't understand his uh, his the way he would rationalize things. I just didn't get it. And uh, isn't it funny how you become what you hate sometimes? And I um, I. I didn't really like to drink. I snuck out of windows all the time in high school and, and uh, went out with my friends and they partied, but I was really afraid of alcohol. After all, look what it, look what had happened in my home. And um, But this one time, the, one of my girlfriends called and said, you know, these cute guys from college are, are going to this party and they've invited us and they have their own apartment and and do you want to go? And I thought, well, yeah, I don't know how old I was, high school, junior high. And uh, so <laughs> we, uh, we went to this party. And for some reason, this one night, I decided uh, to go ahead and, and drink. And um, they were serving 151 rum and coke. And um, 
um, they, they were very dark drinks, if you know what I'm saying. Um, so I went ahead and had a couple of stiff ones, drinks that is. And um, uh, I immediately felt at ease. I had a sense of ease and comfort that I tried to, uh, that, that was my goal from then on. I absolutely thought things were wonderful. My um, black and white world turned to technicolor. The fear melted off of me, and um, um, I had the illusion that everything was okay, and I didn't care if it wasn't. Um, it just took away all that uh, alcoholism. <laughs> it took away the, uh, it just, it was my cure. Alcohol had started to do then what, what uh, AA does for me today. I, um, I stuck in it, you know, I just continued to drink it every chance I could like we do and had a great time and went out partying and um, nothing really happened till high school. And then when I was in high school, I uh, was at a girlfriend's house and we were drinking out of her dad's bar. And uh, on the way home in a blackout, I totaled um, the car, my parents' car. And um, my dad was unavailable when the police called. But uh, my mother came, and um, it, what this did to the family was they were mortified, absolutely mortified, because what would everybody think? What are the people at church going to think? What are our friends going to think? It was, uh, you know, it was a devastation for the family. I had really, uh, I had really, you know, done the wrong thing. But uh, years went by. I went to college, and, and I was sort of glad to get out of the house, and I went to this... Uh, uh, religious-based university. After all, I had to do what I was, uh, I had to please my parents, and, and my dad taught there, and I got free tuition, and that always helped. And I joined the Christian sororities and did that, and then as soon as those meetings were over, I went right to the dorm room and did a head dive into the closet, and I got my bottle and went out with those friends. And so I, I started drinking, and, and uh, you know, already life was, the drinking was becoming a lot of work back then. I drank uh, whenever I had a chance. I, I don't know how I studied and drank, and, and then I had a couple of jobs in college, and and the drinking picked up. And, and one of these jobs I had was at a restaurant on Coast Highway. It was a real fancy restaurant, and uh, I was a, uh, a cocktail waitress. Of course, I told my parents I'm a hostess. And uh, it, it was uh, kind of dim lights in this restaurant, and we had to wear you know, nice a skirt and heels, and, and and I was a nervous wreck, like always, and one night the bartender said, hey, Annie, why don't you, uh, uh, let me slip you a couple of drinks here, and I thought, oh, okay, so uh, a couple of drinks, and it was like, oh, look at this place, it's beautiful, <laughs> and look at these customers they're fantastic i love this job you know it changed everything and um unfortunately for me once i seemed like once i did something drinking i was afraid to ever do it sober again it was just my deal and um I would go in that walk-in refrigerator. We carried a tray, and we had a cup and with our own garnishes, and we had to replenish those. And <laughs> I'd go in that walk-in refrigerator, I don't know how many times. I'd say, God, you sure use a lot of cherries and limes? Oh, yeah, I'm all out. 
And uh, I'd go in there, and it was lined with with wine. And I'd hold the door closed with my foot, and I'd be in there, you know, down in all the wine. And that walk refrigerator would come out, and it, it just, life was wonderful. I thought this was the greatest job ever. I thought I loved my people. And my I, I had a job during the day. Uh, in a little children's clothing store, and in this children's clothing store, that it was a small store in Brentwood. It was uh, owned by a little Jewish family. They took me in like family. I, I eventually, they gave me the keys. I'd worked there in high school, and I was still working there a little bit in college, and boy, I was busy. And um, uh, they, they really trusted me. As soon, sooner or later, they just let me open the store, and, and uh, then I found out, you know, little drink in there was kind of fun too or actually it made everything more pleasant and then I started discovering the cure for the hangover was a little alcohol and I would hide a bottle in the back of the toilet and then I discovered uh, what a big shot I could be if I could steal some of those clothes and sell them in, uh, at, at school and uh, and steal and, and it just uh, things started spiraling I just started uh for no no real reason, stealing and drinking, and I, I still had that job though, and and the drinking just started to get worse. I'd lived my first two years in college in the dormitories, and the second two years we had an, we lived in a house on Coast Highway with four girls, and by now I'm hiding a bottle in the back of my trunk of my car and under the bed and in the closet, and um, I discovered a. You know, the, like I said, the cure for the hangover was a little booze in the morning, and then as uh, uh, soon as classes were over, and I started getting into some trouble and the blackouts, and uh, about uh, somewhere in my senior year of college, one of my, or some of my friends came to me, and, and these were good friends. They're still friends today, and they really cared about me, and they said, uh, Annie, um, we think you have a problem with alcohol. And I was devastated because you don't understand. If you had the family I have, and how dare they say it out loud? You know, this is something you don't talk about. I was just mortified. I, I you know, I was like, if you had the father I have, and if you live the life I have, and I think I, my emotions are more deep and sensitive than a normal person. I, blah, 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 I know what they're thinking. Get off the cross, we need the wood. But I, uh, I, uh, my case is different. You know, not once did it occur to me that maybe I should cut back on the drinking. It was, I got to hide this drink and it, I've got to be more careful. And I stood, drifted away a little from them and and I, I thought, I don't know about any of you guys, but I thought I'd never sleep again in my life without drinking. I don't think I went to sleep. I think I passed out. And uh, <laughs> I thought, well, you know, some of my buddies smoke that dope. And they say that makes helps them sleep. Well, you know, so I, I bought some of that and um, smoked a joint. And I just could not wait for that to wear off so I could have that, that drink. You know, it just did not work. I was not into it. I needed my drink, my alcohol. And uh, it got close to graduation and, and I was miserable. Um, I knew by now that I something was wrong. Um, but it didn't mean I was going to stop. I just had to find a way to control it and enjoy it better. And uh, uh, I was getting bloated, and the hangovers were horrendous. 
came time to graduate from college, and I went into the PR field. And I, I, I had to dress nicely and carry a briefcase, and I had to keep this bottle uh, somewhere. And I was, it, it just got to be hell, because before I had some control, you know, I could keep the bottle in my car, in my closet, or under my bed. But, you know, I, a skinny little briefcase, I couldn't be with clients, and then, you know, the, the thing wouldn't close with a bottle in it. And um, it was tough. And uh, one day, one of my good friends from college came to me. She says, hey, Annie, um, you know, I've always wanted to be a flight attendant. I'm going to go down and apply. And I, this light went on. <gasps> flight attendant. And I'm like, isn't that that thing that you serve drinks on the plane? And she goes, yeah. And I go, oh, yeah, I've wanted to be one, too. Um, so I went down and I applied with her. I thought, God, this is great. I can't do this. That sounds like a party. And so I went down to every airline and filled out my application. And um, it was 1979 during the United Strike. And uh, <laughs> I, uh, two weeks later, I got an interview back in the mail. And I thought, well, this is great. So I went down a put on the suit and, and everything, and, and by now I was more than a daily drinker. I was drinking in the morning a lot, too, but I did the only thing I know how to do. I sat in that AA parking lot in front of that AA interview and drank a bottle of wine, and I went in, and I was the only one hired out of the, I don't know how many people. Alcohol worked for me, and it worked good, and uh I was, you know, I thought I was pretty sharp. And then they said, hey, Annie, what we're going to do now is uh, we really need people. We'll do a quick second interview, and then we'll send you down to the Charm Farm in Dallas. And I thought, oh, great, you know. Uh, and they said, bring whatever you do. It doesn't, there's no guarantee you're going to get out or you're going to graduate because, and then after that, you're on probation. But uh, pack all your stuff because we're going to send you directly to your new base. You know, and I'm like a surfer chick from California or had been before I would have drowned. Um, and I, uh, I packed all my stuff, and I did what I thought was normal. It, I took a few bottles of booze and hid it between the clothes and went down there and, uh, you know, did all the deal. I, um, the booze was gone in like three days, and that, that was probably the last period of time where I spent any time at all um, sober. And, uh, for, and I was miserable. Sooner or later, though, by the fifth or sixth week in training, I found a bar right off off campus, as we do. And, and uh, somehow I made it through that training and that charm farm. And uh, they said, okay, Annie, here we go. Uh, we're going to send you to Chicago. And I thought, oh, it's really cold there. And there's a lot of Irish people, and they love to drink. You have to drink a lot to stay warm. That's the ticket. And off I went. And I... Loved it. Here I am in a new atmosphere, new environment with people that didn't know my history. They knew nothing about my little drinky poo problem, and um, and I was just a good girl that wanted to party, you know. And so uh, we partied, we drank and drank and drank, and you know, as people will tell you, things were a little different in the airline industry then, and. Uh, you know, today we have random drug testing and alcohol testing, and uh, we don't have anything like that. Then we didn't even go through security, you know. And um, my, it was nothing for my beeper to go off in a bar in downtown Chicago, and you know, I'm drinking coffee on the plane, and 
trying to sober up and um it, we were a mess i mean i just drank and drank and drank and um somewhere in the first few months we a supervisor came on board and it was uh in the morning and by now i'm kind of sick i've been sick for a while i was uh shaky without the alcohol and and uh uh, I was just drinking like I was going to the electric chair in a half hour all the time. And um, I, uh, supervisor came on and she says, you know, you're on probation. I'm your supervisor. And um, what I'm going to do, it was something, it was like six in the morning. She says, I'm going to do a little check ride. It's this thing where they watch every phase of your flight. And um, I said, okay, great. And I was shaky and I was sick and I was nervous. And I thought, there's no way I can push a card or serve a drink this morning. There's just no way. I was always terrified without something. So I took the risk, and I went in, and I took a couple miniatures into the lavatory and shot down a couple of bottles of vodka, and I went out, and I was fine. And I passed that, but unfortunately, that same thing happened to me. I never drew another sober breath on the plane. I was afraid to work a flight. Uh, until I finally did get sober from that day on, and and I'll tell you, that's a, I thought it was hard work before hiding the booze and pleasing the parents and hiding it from this fiance, breaking up with him because he didn't know I drank, and you know, just uh, just a lot of work. But uh, now I now I had a, it, the work became even harder. Um, I got where I, I carried this flask that held a little over a quart. It was plastic, and. Um, I, I took it on the trip every day, and and uh, if it started, I started worrying if I drank too much, it got down too far, and oh my God, I'm not going to have enough for tonight. And then what about in the morning? Because I had to drink in the morning, I couldn't even get mascara on. I was just, and um, so uh, I'd go into that lavatory. You know, the other girls would go into the lavatory and say, "I'm going to go freshen up my lipstick," and they'd take a little tube in, and I, I'd go to the lavatory with my whole tote bag. I'll be right back. I gotta freshen up, and uh, you know, and I'd come out, and there'd be this big sweat beads on, and the glassy eyes. I feel better. Do I look pretty? And uh, you know, and I, I was getting that look, you know, the potato body with two sticks, and uh, just uh, it was a mess. And um, and I would, uh, I would be on the layovers, and and I'd look in the mirror, and I'd say. Uh, uh, you know, you're nothing but an alcoholic, and I'd spit at myself in the mirror, and then I'd take another drink, and um, it was just a, a constant thing, and I, uh, I used to write long letters when I was drunk, of course, well, when wasn't I, and I, um, you know, dear God, why do I drink this way, what's the matter with me, and, you know, the God I'd grown up with was, I was so scared of. Because uh, as I understood it, I was a failure. I was going to hell, whatever that was, and I'd never meet up to the standards. And uh, But somehow I still believed there was a God. Um, and I'd write these letters. I never once would write, uh, I'd let, help me stop drinking. It was, why do I drink this way? And um, eventually... I, I was starting to, real, I think, wear my welcome out in Chicago. So I decided it was time to transfer back to Los Angeles, where everybody's senior, like I am now. And uh, I uh, got, uh, I was based there. I was very junior. And uh, the, the drinking continued. But one more time, it was new people. And, and 
You know, it was hell. It was a chase, and, and I had some crazy behavior. But, you know, I did still have a lot of fun sometimes, and, and I, I, it wouldn't be right if I didn't share with you some of the crazy stuff uh, that went on. I, um, I, <laughs> I remember this when I first got to Los Angeles. Of course, I hooked up with the drinkers. And um, this one party, there was about eight of us because it was a DC-10. And we did this all night. And we started in L.A., went to somewhere like Oklahoma City, and then on to um, Ann Arbor, Michigan. We landed in Detroit and drove to Ann Arbor for like a 36-hour layover. Well, we, were, we started drinking, you know, from the get-go, and some of them had drugs, and um, the, the normal ones would wait till we got there. I don't know how, but um, after doing this trip for like a month or so, it was really exhausting. It was, you sleep deprived, but um, the crew members, we all knew each other, and they said, you know, we're going to this college town. What we ought to do is all bring our roller skates, and we can roller skate around the campus. And I said, well, that sounds exhausting is what I thought. But I said, well, that sounds great, but I, I don't have roller skates. I, I never did. I, I do have a unicycle from when I was a kid. I kind of, and, you know, when I was a kid, I rode it. And they said, oh, my God, bring it. And I said, there is no way. And um, they said those three words that always did it for me, uh, we dare you. So... <laughs> Honest to God, the next trip, here we are. The girls carrying their roller skates, some in their suitcase. I'm rolling the su suitcase and rolling the unicycle in front of me onto the DC-10. So I thought, well, okay. So I, I put it in the back of the DC-10 and rolled it into a little closet there. Um, about halfway through the flight, the captain calls back. The captain who is sober today, by the way. And... Uh, he says, uh, in those days, we didn't get paid unless the captain turned in our pay sheet. Everything was, nothing was computerized. They had to initial everything. And he says, hey, Annie, this is Bob or whoever. He says, uh, I'm not going to turn in your pay sheet unless you deliver your next tray of drinks right in that unicycle down the aisle. <laughs> I said, there's no way. And what did he say? I dare you. And I said, okay. So I got it out, and, you know, I thought no, I thought everybody wanted to party. I was riding the unicycle up down all, delivering tricks. And I, honest to God, I, uh, that was normal. And, you know, God forbid somebody wants to take a nap on the flight, because I'm having a party. And, uh, you know, I was telling this story, and some years later, uh, after I got sober, another flight attendant and I were participating in, in an event where we both were like 10-minute speakers, and I briefly told something about the unicycle, and my friend Pam, who was sober alcoholic, got up afterwards, and she goes, you know, Annie doesn't even remember this. She says, but I was on her flight. I was the purser. She says, uh, and I cringed, of course. She said, not only did she ride that unicycle, but she said that I had these flash, these red glasses with bulbs around them that flashed. <laughs> and uh, a little rope that went to my apron, and, um, and so it was true, you know. It was confirmed. Um, 
I, uh, you know, it was nothing for me to, uh, one of my girlfriends on the 747 to roll up a closet door and I'd be passed out on some fur coats, you know. I'm tired. And, uh, I, I'll never forget the time I was, uh, on the 747 we had, we used to have a, uh, tray cart, entree cart, beverage cart. And I would do the trays, because it didn't matter if you are shaking or whatever, you just down and up. Down and up. Oh, I was so tired. Down, and I'd go down, and I went down to get a tray, and the two girls behind her, like, she didn't come up. <laughs> and, uh, so funny, the girls, Annie, what's up? They're pushing a the cart, and, you know, I, I, oh, I'm stuck. And I was in there, and my hair was stuck in one of the metal bars in there. <laughs> And they had to climb over the seat and cut my hair. And I passed out for a while. And, uh, you know, I just, it was, uh, whoa. But, uh, and it's, uh, it's real funny and everything, but my drinking was getting miserable. And, and uh, so many things occurred. And I would say to myself, Something, someday something's going to happen. Some, you're going to get caught. You're going to lose your job. But until that day, I have to drink, and it's worth it. And uh, and I would just keep drinking. And I was so afraid that I would get caught and I would get fired. And by now, my little self-esteem was tied up, and at least I have this job. At least I'm a flight attendant. You know, I, uh, I that, that meant something to me. You know, I'm something. I'm somebody if I have that job. And... Um, Yes, that day did come, and an intervention was done on me by uh, several sober flight attendants who are members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, they had called my parents, and through a series of events and everything, that I'd become pretty sick. And um, they got my parents, they got my sister, my brother-in-law, and, and a couple good friends, and they all uh, did the center, pulled me out of a neighbor's house where I was busy. And... Um, <laughs> did an intervention on me and uh, and I was mortified I, I was ter- what are people going to think you know it's okay I'm riding a unicycle on the plane but what will they think if they find out I'm a sober alcoholic you know and my little fragile ego I was I was mortified I was terrified and, and these sober flight attendants uh, ironically that's what I'm doing now I'm trying to give it back but uh, and I understand when they're mortified but they uh, explained to me that my life would only get better, and I'll, I'll never forget them saying that. Of course, I didn't believe it at the time, and and that I would not lose my job if I became got involved in the program, became a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I could have anything I wanted, and I may not even want that job. And uh, um, so anyway, I went into this program that was run by us. Several, uh, all the people that worked there were sober members of AA and Al-Anon, and. Um, Boy, did I shake it out. I was a real sick puppy. And uh, I'll tell you, I got out of there and I, you know, I shed 30 or 40 pounds in bloat. And I was, I thought it was fabulous, this sobriety. Because I, I thought, God, I have this physical freedom. I don't have to constantly worry about the drink. I can do things. And, um, and I, you know, those meetings they want me to go to. You know, if you just go a little late and leave a little early, you're still doing what you're supposed to do. And uh, uh, besides that, 
There's only one problem. I didn't think I could really push a car to serve a drink with nothing. I, I'm a sober alcoholic, so I don't drink. But I went to the local drug dealer and got never did drugs. Got some uh, street quaaludes, about a hundred of them, just to uh, their Valium because just because I'm nervous and. Uh, I was going to sell most of them. I think I sold two tablets. And, uh, I, you know, this sobriety was fabulous. I was relaxed all the time. I was looking good. And if you saw me at a party, I don't drink, you know. And uh, I, uh, I don't know about you, but when I was drinking, I, I did a little of that cocaine because I could drink and drink and drink. And, you know, drinking is my thing. And uh, I start to fade or pass out, do a little of that, and I was back. Now, here I am sober. I'm sober, don't you know? And I'm trying to do a little cocaine and enjoy it. And uh, I don't understand why it's not enjoyable uh, like it was before. Uh, my jaw was killing me. I just feel great about it. I don't know what's wrong with you. Oh, Jesus Christ. Pretty soon I thought, you know, I really feel like I'm, I'm coming down with a cold uh, or maybe in the next uh, year or so. So I'm, I better drink seven or eight bottles of NyQuil. And I tell you, I got the worst rash. Oh, so I switched to Listerine. And uh, it really made me sick. And I will never forget after a year or I, I'm not, all the dates and times are vague to me. Going into that liquor store and remember the space I parked in. I remember what the guy looked like that sold it to me and I bought that half pint of, of uh, vodka and I sat in the car and drank it and it was like magic because I'm an alcoholic chronic like there's any other kind and I have no solution I'm dry and life is too scary and um, when I drink that drink it just gives me goosebumps now to remember but I thought my progression of my disease, I'd heard about it. I thought I could never get worse. I was pretty sick when I got here. But I'm here to tell you that the progression of this disease is astonishing. It'll always get worse as long as I'm breathing. And then in the next few months, I uh, found myself in places and did things that um, uh, were just 100% due to this, to uh, the disease of alcoholism and where the progression of drinking took me. Um, I, I really thought it could never get worse. I had an apartment, but I slept in my uh, van a lot of the time. And um, I ended up uh, in motel rooms uh, in Santa Monica. And uh, uh, just uh, just to let you know, kinds of I, I was raped in a motel room. Um, and in, in a general, it's, a very, it's vague to me, but I was beat up in an alley by a... Uh, uh, what we used to call winos, another alcoholic trying to get his bottle, and I was in my uniform. Um, the kinds of things, uh, the, the places that alcohol will take me, and, and what really terrifies me is uh, I know it'll get worse because I've seen it already. I've done it, and I'm afraid I'd stay alive. And um, it was bad, and I still had this one boyfriend, and this boyfriend, uh, he says, you know, I, I know you're drinking. I am not. <laughs> But uh, he really cared about me, and he says, here's what we're going to do. I know you, you, need, you think you need hospitalization or whatever, but we're going to put you in the car. We're going to drive to Santa Barbara. We're going to get you a motel and let you shake it out for a few days. And this guy was sober because uh, to, uh, to get him out of my way of drinking, 
I had uh, already put him through a hospital program, and he had continued to go to AA, stay sober. And um, so I said, great. So we did that, and after three or four uh, days, it's all vague to me. We were driving back, and the last thing I remember, seeing a bunch of dinosaurs crossing the road. And uh, when I woke up, I was in a hospital. I had the first of many, many grand mal seizures, trying to come off alcohol myself. Uh, in order to protect himself, this boyfriend hit the road, and uh, my parents moved me into a small uh, apartment in West L.A., and um, the whole family was terrified and scared, and, and, um, and by now, I really wanted to get sober. I was scared, and I called a couple of people and friends in Santa Monica and in the Palisades and that uh, I had met in that hospital, nurses that worked there, and they'd take me to meetings and spoon-feed me honey and uh, try to keep me from having seizures, and, and uh, I'd get a day or two, I'd go back to my apartment, and somehow I would I'd get out, somehow write a check and, and get the booze, and uh, I was so afraid to not drink, and I was so afraid to drink, and uh uh, I lost track of what's day or night or eating or, you know, and I don't know how long it really went on this way. Um, I, uh, I, I did still have my job, though. I, they'd given me every break they, like, you know, they could, and, and there were some people there that really cared about me. And uh, this one night came, and, and my job was still all I had, you know. I, at least I'm a flight attendant, you know. And uh, so this one night, I, you know, I lived in the studio apartment. With, my bed just had three legs on it, and every night I would spray raid around it. There were so many cockroaches, and um, I remember that clearly. And um, I just, it was like a survival thing. Wake up, pass out. Wake up, pass out. And... Uh, every few days get out for uh, booze or something or try to get sober again and um this one day i said you know i'm pretty sure tonight was the night i was supposed to go back to work i was supposed to do a dallas turnaround an all-night thing and uh i was in such a state of uh, insanity at this point um i somehow got in my volkswagen van and uh to show you what kind of insanity i was at, i put this big half gallon of vodka in the seat behind me, behind the seat, in this van. I had, you know, the uniform on all that, and I headed out toward the freeway in West L.A. And next thing I remember, I woke up, and I'm in the middle of the street line there, and, and I, I feel all wet, and I realize this is, I'm bleeding all over the place. And I, I was perfectly calm, and I looked over there, the flashing lights and everything, right on Wilshire there, you know, and, and my van was totaled it was across the way and, and things were vague and they came in and out and and uh a lady came up to me and looked down at me and uh, she asked if i was okay i says why do you care she says i'm a nurse i just i care she'd come from ucla right there and then um as clear as if it were uh an hour ago i remember it, I, the, it sound it was like the sound went off and I looked up, and there was this policeman looking down at me. And uh, I uh, looked up at him, and I finally said words I'd never said before in my life. I said, I'm an alcoholic. I can't stop drinking, and I need help. And he said, I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, I had gone head-on to a car, I guess, and totaled it. 
I haven't had a drink since that day, but he took me uh, to, to UCLA. Of course, I had no car. I told them there that I might have seizures, so they took care of me long enough to get past that. And a nurse gave me a ride to my studio apartment. And I don't care how big my surrender is. I'm now in my apartment alone, and uh, I'm thinking, you know, maybe there's just a little something in a bottle left around somewhere just to, to ward, ward things off, you know. And I look around. There, for once, for the first time since in a long time since I could remember, there wasn't even any perfume or shoe polish or anything, you know, NyQuil. Um, left in that apartment and then the phone rang and it was this uh, f sober flight attendants again they had called they said you know Americans uh, set a precedent they're putting you through a, a, a detox and uh, that's when I went uh, crawling into those meetings in my brother's pants and full of scars and <laughs> stitches and you know I didn't care about that anymore I uh I was so happy to be sober and so afraid it wouldn't last. You know, I before that, I couldn't get sober. I couldn't get sober. I finally asked for help. Um, I uh, really got involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, uh, I just... I was so, I just remember the terror that, you know, okay, now I've got three days. I'm afraid I won't get one more if I do something wrong or I don't take the action. So I got this sponsor and anything she said, I did. And um, I was going to meetings in West LA and on the West Side. And, and <laughs> I, uh, I followed her direction. I worked through the steps. You know, I had to do that stuff that I was terrified of. I had to, uh, make amends to those that clothing store and, and pay those people back for the stuff I'd stolen, much less tell them about it. You know, and I had to tell people the truth, and that was very difficult for me. I'm one of those people, even my mother said from the, an early age, I was like a chronic liar. You know, if I'd done something twice, I just said three times, and look you right in the eye. And, um, you know, I had to start telling the truth and uh, making those amends and paying that money back. and. And my sister and I hated each other. And uh, I called her and made amends. And I had stolen some of her furniture and, and had to pay her back for that. But uh, I went out to see her. And she lived in New Mexico. And she showed me the area. And I fell in love with it. And eventually we moved there just three years ago. But um, I, uh, I, it's important for me to tell you that as uh, as much of a surrender as I had, as willing as I was, um, it took me four years into sobriety to admit that somewhere in the first couple months I'd done a couple lines of cocaine. And I held on to that secret. When I did my inventory, that was the part where she said, any secrets? And I put it all down, but I was, I, I was going to somehow not, not slip that out after all. It was just somewhere in the first couple months. And after about four years, uh, I knew I was going to get drunk if I didn't let that go. See, I got a big ego, and I know every one of you in this room is concentrating on the exact date of my sobriety, which is, by the way, <laughs> which is, by the way, November 28th, 1983. I, um, my original date was September 28th, so we moved it. That was devastating. You know, I just, uh, it, it was important for me to do that. I had to be clear of that. Um, I, uh, I just started experiencing a, a new freedom. Um, 
Roger and I started running marathons. Um, first of all, I met Roger in the first uh, six months. <laughs> and um, But we waited a long time to get married. We really did. I was two and he was four. And, um, you know... I, we had so much sobriety, but, uh, you know, we'll be married to coming up on 17 years, I think, and we've had a, a great life. Um, I, I fell in love with Roger because um, he loved Alcoholics Anonymous as much as I did, and, you know, I was the poor guy. Every time we'd go on a date, I was like, can we go to a meeting? He was like, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, we've, we've just had such a great life. Um, I, uh, so much has happened. Um, you know, things went along great, and, and um, I was, five or six years ago, I was at a meeting and talking, giving my little story. It was a small meeting, and, and I don't, I'm not this big-time speaker, so, but it was, I had to speak twice that month between flying, and, you know, I, by the way, I still fly. It's been 24 years, but I, um, you know, pays the bills. <laughs> uh, but uh, I got to the part about, it was a beginner's meeting in Hermosa Beach. And I got to the part, a couple of girlfriends were sitting in the front row. I got to the part about the policeman. And, and there were some people chit-chatting back there. And in the back of my head, I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, I come all this way. I'm into to the, the dramatic moment, and they're ruining it for me. You know, of course, what I said was just continue the story. You know, it's all about me, you know. It's always all been, been about me. And um, uh, after the meeting, the line formed. They came up to thank me, and I, I looked up, and there's this face with tears coming down. And uh, this guy says, hi, my name's John. I'm your policeman. And um, he had been looking for me, too, for the last, uh, since I got sober. I, you know, it's, uh, like I said, I've always exaggerated and, and lied. And, and so in telling stories, I always kind of want to check with people to make sure I haven't built it up, you know. I think, because, you know, a little more sounds a little better. And so I'm going, I'm asking John, okay, is it, 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 did it happen like I told it? He said, exactly. He said, what's weird about it is he's had like 10,000 accidents. And um, he remembers every detail of that accident, the direction the gurney was facing in the hospital. And, you know, he didn't uh, arrest me. He took me to the hospital. And he said, honey, you were <laughs> not looking good. You were quite the beaut, you know, <laughs> puffy old, puffy old drunk. And, um, he said, but he just had a feeling about that, and uh, I'm glad he had that feeling. Um, but uh, he came to Bellflower Big Book and gave me my cake that year. That was quite an honor. Um, just uh, four or five years ago, uh, as life happens, Roger came down with some rare autoimmune disease, and uh, uh, you know, it took forever for us to find out what was going on with him. He'd be on steroids and then chemo. I mean, he was circling the drain, believe me. And um, <laughs> you know, then he'd, he'd get a little, he'd get a little better, then down the drain again. But um, you know. 
this program, it's it's been so unbelievable in life. This is my family. You know, this is this is where I get my love. This is where I get my support. Uh, everybody showed up. Uh, people were there for us day and night. I had one girl uh, that I sponsored come to the hospital with me one day when I'd called 911, and, and I says, what are you doing here? you got to work. She goes, no, I called in sick. And I says, I don't need anybody here with me. She says, yes, you do. And the next day, she says, and tomorrow, Kim's coming. She called in sick. And, uh, you know, just things like that and the meetings people brought to the house. And uh, uh, unbelievable. Um, you know, my sponsor was a wonderful lady, and she gave a lot of support uh, always. And she taught me about being of service. She, you know, that was the biggest, the biggest deal for me in sobriety was conquering my fear. I remember when I was new, and uh, I, it was time for me to go back to work. I was out of the hospital. I'd been to a lot of meetings. It'd been only about a month, but I, and she said, "You get your work," and I said, "Okay." And. Uh, I said, but, you know, you don't understand. When I get there and I go to push that cart and serve those drinks, I get start shaking. I get so nervous. And this isn't sobriety. I'm scared to death to talk to anybody. I couldn't even drive anymore, for God's sake, sober. This is my neck gets red. What do I do? And she says, do it anyway. Who cares? <laughs> What's the worst that can happen? And, I mean, that was like, oh. You know, it's the simple things around here that have taught me the most. I said, but you don't get it. I'm like almost going to pass out. She says, so you pass out. And, uh, you know, she just always said to me, uh, 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 God's the answer. Now, what was that question? Uh, oh, and, uh, and I'd start blah, 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 but you don't understand. God's the answer. Now, what's the question? And um, I don't know how many days I spent in the laboratory on my knees, those pantyhose I went through. Uh, she just told me to say the third step prayer. And I, I've one step at a time, one thing at a time, I learned to do things sober that I'd never done uh, sober. That's a big deal for a drunk like me. Um, I, uh, so I was, Roger was in the hospital, and I called my, my sponsor died when he was in the hospital. And I remember, uh, uh, you know, thinking, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And, um. Somebody else came into my life. She lives in Indiana, but Norma's been wonderful, loving support, uh, unbelievable. Um, so we moved to New Mexico. You know, he was uh, still sick, but he was doing better. And we moved because that was our dream. That was the deal. It was beautiful. My sponsor once told me, if when, you, when you see a place, when you go to a place where you feel and see God, go there often. So I moved there. And, uh, you know, I, I still, I'm a dinosaur flying out of L.A. still, and, and I have the perfect life. Um, we're members of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, in, in New Mexico. And um, I'll tell you uh, briefly that uh, I, I wouldn't be honest if I didn't tell you how 911 has been uh, a big deal in my life or affected my life. I um you know, those flights to Boston, flight 77 and 11, I've done over and over over the years. And those people on those planes uh, uh, were friends of mine, and a lot of them. I just know that this program, it's so important for me to tell you that uh, because of this program, I have been able to, uh, to be of service. 
It was about five days after that happened, and I was flying with a, I had been flying with a sober member of AA, um, and a flight attendant friend of mine, and I called her. I says, you know, most of our friends weren't able to fly. They weren't able to go to work, and uh, I says, what are you going to do? And she says, what are you going to do? And I says, I need to go be of service. And she said, so do I. So we went to work. You know, AA has given me my answer. Uh, we went, we got on that plane, and sure enough, there was people on there that had lost family members and uh, and people who had been digging in the rubble. And and there's been people ever since. And um, you know, it's this program. My sponsor always told me what you learn at your meetings, how to be of service, how to participate, how to work the steps. It will. Uh, you need to learn to take it out there. So I've tried to do that. I've I just got back a few months ago, or last December from Cuba. I was honored to do a, a humanitarian mission over there with Patch Adams. Um, and, you know, I just, as long as I'm being of service, I seem comfortable. Um, even that this job, you know, it's, it's, some may say I'm a Coke machine, <laughs> but uh, it's the very thing that makes me comfortable in my own skin. Uh, I'm, for a while, I'm not thinking about me. I'm thinking about you. Um, my one sponsor always said to me, the one, Sam, who passed away, she, she would always say, you know, uh, she knew I had a new concept of God. When I, after the accident with the van and the policeman, uh, for some reason I had a whole new concept of God and I was fortunate enough never have to struggle with it. But she used to say this corny little thing like, uh, you know, God's got a picture of you in his wallet. And, um, so in closing, I just want to read a little thing that a, a friend sent to me. It says, uh, if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If he had a wallet, your photo would be in it. He sends you flowers every spring. He sends you a sunrise every morning. Whenever you want to talk, he listens. He can live anywhere in the universe, but he chose your heart. Face it, friend. He's crazy about you. God didn't promise days without pain, laughter without sorrow, or sun without rain. But he did promise strength for the day, comfort for the tears, and light for the way. Thank you so much. Pastor Happy Cadwell, enjoy this sermon. I'm blessed to be here and uh, welcome all those of you that are watching via live stream. Uh, turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1, and I'd like to deal with uh, the issues that are facing every American and people groups around the world. Um, as we deal with this time of trouble. I want to talk about three things tonight. I want to talk about the spirit of fear. I want to talk about the virus itself. And I want to talk about the economy. The other day I was in a grocery store and I went there to get a non-related product. Uh, there was no, you know, uh, rush. There was no necessity. I just was doing my grocery shopping. And uh, I came across the uh, shelves where the toilet paper was supposed to be. 
and it was empty. So I went to the checkout stand and I asked the lady there, I said, ma'am, I said, uh, can you tell me what the deal is with the toilet paper? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I just don't connect the, the, the lack of toilet paper or the rush on toilet paper with the virus. And she said, well, I guess everybody is afraid that they're going to be stuck at home for uh, unspecified amount of time. They're going to need <laughs> a lot more toilet paper. Well, our son called us the other day and I asked him the same thing. I said, Ronnie, help me connect the dots here between the toilet paper and the virus. He laughed. He said, Dad, if you need 144 rolls of toilet paper to last you two weeks, you've got other problems. <laughs> and I think that's, that's true. You need to go have an examination or something. But people do funny things, stupid things, when there's fear. Now, let's look at the scriptures. The Bible is very clear. Uh, it tells us that God has not given us the spirit of fear. You can say that out loud. God has not given us a spirit of fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear. But God has given us a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. So first of all, you have to discern where the fear comes from. It's a spirit. The, the spirit of fear. Uh, Paul is talking about a demonic spirit. He's not talking about reverence or uh, you know, healthy uh, fear. He's talking about a demon spirit. God didn't give us a spirit of fear. Uh, fear does not come from God. God gives us the spirit of love, power, and a sound mind. Let me read you something that was sent to me the other day. Uh, I was shocked at this. Uh, this is uh, a quote that was made by a Jewish rabbi on a Christian television program. And he says, that this virus is from heaven and God told him that he is uh, releasing a season of fear and panic. Now, first of all, this is irresponsible, unscriptural, and doesn't even match the DNA of God. Did you hear what the rabbi said? And not being critical of the rabbi, anybody could have said this. This um, virus is from heaven and uh, God sent this season of fear and panic. And if President Trump does not call his national day of prayer, uh, call this a national day of prayer, his presidency will be in jeopardy. Well, I have to have, to have a copy of President uh, Trump's national day of prayer. It, it, it's a prayer based on the word of God. And we prayed uh, on the national day of prayer on last Sunday. And the president did call the national day of prayer. But I couldn't believe that this rabbi had pronounced this uh, unnecessary and irresponsible and unscriptural statement. But there are a lot of people that feel that. And I know some of you probably think, okay, where did this come from? Why is it coming? Well, I'm going to endeavor to show you some of the things that the Bible tells us, not what I think. Uh, first of all, we need to deal with this spirit of fear. How do we know when something comes in our midst where it comes from, and what its purpose is. You can discern the source and the purpose by the manifestation. The spirit of fear, the Bible says in 1 John 14, 27, has torment. Yeah. Torment does not come from God. Now, you have to establish this, first of all, if you're going to thrive in perilous times, if you're going to overcome, if you're going to succeed 
if you're going to accomplish, if you're going to uh, go forward. So the, the, the spirit of fear has torment. God did not send the spirit of fear. God doesn't have the spirit of fear. God doesn't have a virus. So he couldn't have sent the virus from heaven. And he never uses in today, in the New Testament, the New Covenant, he has never used uh, these uh, punishments to get people's attention or close to him. A lot of people believe that. I hear preachers all the time saying that, you know, God's in control. Well, what does that mean? Yeah. They think that it means that everything that happens is of God. Well, you can just go to the Bible. Common sense can tell you that that's not true. Uh, God is going to send us the spirit of power, the spirit of love, and a sound, disciplined mind. So you've got to settle the issue with fear, or you'll never be able to use your faith to overcome anything. The Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. Yeah. Well, the Bible says that the house divided against itself will fall. So if God's double-minded then we're all in trouble. Perfect love casts out all fear. You can always identify the source and the purpose of a thing when you see what it produces. Yeah. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief came to do what? Steal, kill, and destroy. But I am come, Jesus said, that you might have life and have it more abundantly. In uh, Luke chapter 9, we can turn over there and you may remember this event. I, I've, I've thought it was kind of funny over the years, but the Holy Spirit brought it back to me. Uh, Luke chapter 9 and verse 56. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. This is where, you know, Peter, James, and John were the, uh, the knit group around Jesus, and sometimes they'd get a little bit aggressive and want to call fire from down heaven and burn up people and Jesus said, hey guys, you've forgotten what spirit you're of. I didn't come to destroy men's lives. I came to save them. We have a, an unprecedented opportunity today to minister to the lost, the people that are afraid, Christians that are fearful. Now's a great time to demonstrate your faith and your love and your confidence in the Word of God. Okay. Uh, love casts out fear. So you need to do that right now. You need to deal with the spirit of fear wherever you're watching. And you need to deal with it at work if you're still working in your neighborhood. You need to deal with the spirit of fear because that's what's driving people. And, and fear is, is a, a, a disaster waiting to happen. Uh, all right, now let's deal with the virus itself. Go over to Psalm 91. I think Psalm 91 is getting more, <laughs> more recognition uh, than it ever has. People that don't even know uh, what it says are Christians that uh, ha have never really read it. Uh, let's see, Job Psalms, Psalm 91. And Jeannie and I read this uh, uh, on a daily basis. I'll tell you something else that we do on a daily basis is we take communion. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, 23-33, uh, we discern the body of the Lord, the blood of the Lord. You can do all these things to protect you. Yeah. You, you know, hand sanitizer is good for your hands, but Psalm 91 and communion every day is good for 
everything, spirit, soul, and body. Psalm 91, and uh, I'll begin with verse 3. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge, my fortress, my God, and Him will I trust. Surely He will deliver me from the snare of the fowler and from the noise and pestilence. God will deliver you from the pestilence. He'll cover you with His feathers under His wings you'll trust. His truth shall be your shielded buckler. You shall not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. Now, I know this is a hard saying. I heard on the news the other day that if the pandemic continues to grow worldwide, Iran has probably been the hardest hit. We hear a lot about Italy, but they're projecting that by the summer months, Iran could have over a million people die of this virus. So a thousand will fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you behold and see the reward of the wicked, because you've made the Lord, which is your refuge, the most high, your habitation. Therefore, there shall no evil befall you neither shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. Now let me stop there just a minute. And let me recall, if you've ever read John G. Lake's book, um, on our television network, VTN, we run uh, John G. Lake's uh, successor, who is Curry Blake. We run his program, and he is the a caretaker of the John G. Lake Ministries. Uh, John G. Lake's son, uh, daughter and son-in-law turned it over to him. John G. Lake was a missionary to Africa. And uh, John G. Lake um, was burying people that had died of the bubonic plague. This was right around the turn of the century. And uh, he and a Dutchman were burying all these people. The medical missionaries came and said, uh, Dr. Lake said, uh, what are you doing to protect yourself from this virus. He said, uh, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Uh, they said, pardon us, we don't, what is that? Romans chapter 8, verses 1, 2, and 3. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Okay. He said, let me demonstrate this for you. You see that corpse over there? There's foam coming out of its mouth. Go over there and take a stick take some of that foam, the germs coming out of the corpse mouth and put it in my hand and then put your microscope on my hand and see what happens to those germs. <laughs> he said, are you sure you want to do this? Absolutely. So they put the germs in his hand, put the microscope on it, and to their amazement, when the germs touched his hand, the germs died. They said, what is that? He said, that's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Yeah. It makes you free from the law of sin and death. Germs, virus, all those things operate under the law of sin and death. So even medical doctors will tell you when you're stressed, when you're fearful and afraid, it opens your pores to let a virus or a germ in. But if you remain cool, calm, and collected, the pores in your skin stay closed. Now Jeannie and I have ministered all over the world, on every continent but one. And we have ministered in leper colonies. 
Bill called that in, well, there's one here in the United States, down in Carville, Louisiana. We've ministered in that one. I've ministered the one in the Philippines. Now, people come in, they have no noses, no ears, no eyes, uh, no fingers, and we laid hands on them. Uh, in the Philippines, it's much worse because they don't have the care that we have here in the U.S. They call them Henson's disease now, treatment centers. But the first time I prayed for these people, uh, they just wept when you laid hands on them because nobody wants to touch them, understandably. But, you know, leprosy or Henson's disease is not transmitted uh, like it was, of course, as you read in the Bible. It's always been God's will to heal anybody and everybody. But we weren't afraid to lay hands on these people. We weren't afraid to lay hands on people that had diseases. We should not be afraid or we will be ineffective. Yes. Do you understand that we're the body of Christ yes. and we have an opportunity now to show the strength of God, the love of God? So God has provided a supernatural protection for you. Now, let me go to the third area that I said I wanted to cover. The spirit of fear, the virus itself, and the economy. In Genesis 26, and you heard Pastor Michelle refer to this a while ago. In Genesis 26, it tells us that uh, this is the second famine. Uh, it says uh, there was a famine in the land beside the first famine. Uh, that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of Philistines, unto Gerar. And the Lord appeared unto him and said, Go not down to Egypt. Now, you can liken the famine to the virus. Everybody's leaving town. There's nothing there. Everybody, everything's shut down. The factories are shut down. The farm workers are... Everybody's going. It's just like today. And, and God told Isaac, said, Do not leave. Stay right here. And I will be with you and I will bless you for unto you and unto your seed will I give all these countries he said I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham your father I will keep my end of the covenant I will make your seed to multiply as the stars of heaven I'll give unto the seed all these countries and in your seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice kept my charge and my covenants, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. All right, now go down to verse 12. Isaac sowed in that land hmm, and received in the same year a hundredfold, not a hundred times. A hundredfold is an indefinite continued return. It's your seed coming back to you in its fullest form, fullest harvest. And he said... Uh, I blessed him with a hundredfold, and the man waxed great, went forward, and grew until he became very great. Now, we also have another opportunity, not only to witness to people, to minister to people, to show them love, power, our soundness of mind, pray for them to be healed if they're sick, pray for them to be encouraged, not to fear. We also have an opportunity to continue to sow. We don't want to quit. We don't stop. We continue to invest in the kingdom of God. Amen. Now, uh, I, I was listening to different financial experts uh, talk about the, uh, uh, the financial aspect of 
of the virus, and you may be affected by it. You may have been laid off or whatever. Uh, our One of our granddaughters and her husband live in Nashville, Tennessee, and they work for the Hilton Hotel Corporation. And they've already laid off 60% of their staff. And the hotel is only 20% occupancy. So we know that people are losing jobs. We know the government's trying to help. And it's because of fear. People are withholding their holy back. Proverbs 11 says, don't withhold more than is fitting. We as, uh, 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 as all people, as Christians, we need to keep supporting our churches, keep supporting ministries. I know many ministries now that have had to cancel uh, crusades. And uh, we were supposed to go to a conference uh, next month. And they called us and said, we're going to have to cancel because people told us they're not coming. The airlines are shut down. The, some of the countries they were coming from have told them, if you go to America and you get ready to come back home, you'll have to quarantine your whole family for two weeks. So when fear comes, people shut down. Here is evidence that God is with you. Yes. Don't stop giving. In fact, if you have cash and you have some money, now's the time to buy. I heard the other day where interest rates are to 0%. If you want to go buy a house, this is the best time. Uh, our, the, the person that over... Uh, sees our financial investments portfolio and has for years sent out an email said whatever you do don't sell anything you haven't lost it until you sell it oh it may have gone down on paper but it's going to come back up so you can't let the spirit of fear uh, drive you you have to uh, listen to the spirit of God uh, just keep investing keep sowing and it is all going to come back to you. You know, I, I told my wife, I said, you know, the grocery stores that are, you know, hoarding and uh, shortages and, and the people that are hoarding and shortages and buying up stuff and selling it online. If I were a merchant today and I had a big box store or, uh, you know, a big uh, restaurant or something, it, you know, during Christmas, Thanksgiving, they put out these big islands of cranberry sauce and pumpkin and you know whatever they're selling uh, turkey and dressing they put big islands out in the middle of the floor on a pallet that's what I would do I would go get all the hand sanitizer and all the toilet paper put it on a big island in the middle of the floor and say we appreciate your business take one of these as our compliments no charge oh nobody would ever think of anything like that because of fear but you would end up, now Chick-fil-A did the other day. They, they gave a thousand chicken sandwiches to a business or whatever. And I saw one interview with one uh, hotel owner down in Florida. Because all the hotels are closed. Uh, Orlando and uh, Disney World and all that kind of stuff. And they interviewed this one guy. And they said, sir, what about you? Are you laying off staff? He said, nope, not one of them. He said, all our staff is going to continue to work and continue to get paid. And they said, how can you do that? Now listen to this. He said, because I have no debt, this hotel owes nobody anything. It was a big hotel. And he said, secondly, we love people. We love our staff. Well, what did Paul say? God's not giving you a spirit of fear, but power love 
and a sound mind. So now's the time for us to demonstrate our faith. I really believe that it's time for the body of Christ to wake up and for the believers to ask themselves this question, am I really a believer? It's time for the believers to decide whether they're believers or not and get out of their rabbit holes and stop hoarding, start, stop being fearful. Oh, I know we have to obey the government, and, and we should, and the Bible tells us to obey the laws of the land, and I know it's, it's good for us to uh, practice, what is it, social distancing, and it's good for us to do everything we can in the natural uh, to avoid the virus or communication uh, thereof, but, you know, we were supposed to go to our great-grandson's seventh birthday party uh, tomorrow. Well, yesterday, the president, uh, quarantine, I guess you could say, he requested all senior citizens from 65 and over to stay home. Well, that affected us. I know I, know I don't look 65 or over, but yet that's what he told us to do. So I told my granddaughter, I said, well, I don't know. It's kind of a hard decision to make, and um, I hope little Jace will understand why Granny and Mimi are not there. Uh, but I said, you know, if I violate my president's request, now it's not an order yet, it's just a request. But he, I said, if I violate the authority that I submit myself to, that I pray for, um, and I disobey or rebel against it, how does that affect my witness? And am I opening the door? for the enemy to come in. You know, I have no fear, I have no, uh, no reason to fear. I've faced issues like this uh, for years. Uh, we've been through all kinds of epidemics and pestilences and shortages and uh, Y2K and 9-11, uh, hurricane. I rode a hurricane out at sea one time in the Navy aboard ship. Uh, we have uh, weathered the swine flu, the uh, you name it, and whatever comes your way, the gas shortage. I mean, we were traveling on the road full-time, the gas shortage hit. We never were in a gas line and never uh, couldn't go anywhere. It, it just depends on what you believe and if you're willing to act on what you believe. Now, I'm not talking about being foolish, presumptuous. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm not talking about tempting God. I'm just talking about standing on this word Asking the Lord to lead, God, and direct you. He'll show you what to do, where to go, where not to go, who to shake hands with, who not to shake hands with. I mean, we do all the natural things, and we should, but we also have to demonstrate uh, the power of God. And I think it's a wake-up time for the body of Christ uh, to wake up and stand up and be the body of Christ. And, you know, I, I know a lot of churches are shut down, but you, you mark my word. If you're not careful, pastors, after this virus passes and all of the emergency is over with, if you're not careful, if you don't pay attention, you'll continue to dumb down your church. You'll continue to back off. Uh, you'll see that people uh, functioned okay uh, with the services on live stream, so why should we even bother? with having a, a church service. We, we need to, you know what, what the body of Christ really needs, and I think we're going to see some of this. The body of Christ really needs to start believing in miracles, yes. signs, 
wonders, deliverances. We need to start seeing the things that happened uh, back in the days of healing. When Oral Roberts left uh, ORU and went back on the road, it really hurt my heart when he came back and he was, he was really grieved. He was downtrodden. And uh, he said that he was so disappointed to see that the church was so dead. He said, the churches that I've gone into, there's no manifestation of the Spirit. There's no moving in the Spirit. There's no power. And here, here's a man that prayed for thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. Reinhard Bonka, who always, his mandate was, Africa shall be saved. Did you know that Africa is touted now, according to missionary statistics, as being uh, the most Christian nation on the face of the earth? And did you know that they are sending missionaries all over the world? And there are Russian Christians, missionaries, that are being sent all over the world, Asia. I mean, in lieu of all of the uh, fear and tragedy that we're facing, the pandemic, you need to know on the other side, there's a revival going on. There's an awakening going on. I mean, uh, countries are waking up. People are, are responding, but they're responding to the power. They're responding to the uh, healing power, the anointing power, uh, the preaching power, uh, casting out of devil's power. And that's what we need to see in the body of Christ. Uh, let me digress just a minute. And uh, I would like to... Uh, go to a book that I found. Actually, somebody found this for me and sent it to me. I've been looking for it, but I couldn't find it. I misplaced mine, uh, and a, a precious sister in the Lord found this for me and gave it to me. It's called World War III by Hilton Sutton. Now, I don't know whether you have asked the Lord, okay, Lord, what's going on here? Why is this happening? We know it isn't from Him. We know He's not sending it. We know he's not using it to chastise his people. That's totally counter the word of God. And uh, so I went back and reread some of the things in this book. And I'd like to read you uh, a couple of little uh, sentences. Uh, world War III is really the uh, war between Russia and Israel. Uh, you can find Ezekiel 38, 39. It's when, it's when Russia invades Israel from the north for whatever reason, food, weapons, territory, and this World War III. Now, this is not Armageddon. Uh, Armageddon uh, takes place at the end of the uh, tribulation period. World War III, now, according to uh, Hilton Sutton, World War III will begin and end in one single day. Now, before World War III takes place, Russia invading Israel from the north, the rapture of the church is going to occur. Now, a lot of people are confused about the second coming, the rapture. There are two separate events. The rapture of the church is the catching away of the body of Christ to meet Jesus in the air. The second coming is when we come back with him at the end of the tribulation period, and everybody sees Jesus. But the rapture of the church, nobody sees him. It's like Acts chapter 1. Uh, the angel said, Why stand you gazing up into the clouds? That same Jesus that was caught up in the clouds will come back the same way. So we know the rapture of the church, the catching away of the church, 
takes place before the Great Tribulation period, and World War III follows it right after the rapture, World War III. Now listen to this. World War III is the attempt of Russia uh, to uh, take over uh, Israel. Uh, notice that uh, in the scriptures, you, know, you can read it in Ezekiel, you can read it in Daniel, uh, God calls on nations uh, to supply a sword, which is an implement of war, uh, be, to be brought down hard upon Russia. Uh, they'll strike a powerful nuclear blow, and in one single day, the war will begin and end. Now, this is not the Battle of Armageddon. Don't confuse the two battles. They're separate affairs. Take note that the battle discussed in this book is brought uh, and fought in the mountains of Israel far to the north of Jerusalem between Russia and her satellites, Israel and her satellites. The victor is Israel. The defeated foe is Russia. It will take Israel seven months to bury the Russian dead and seven years to use up the fuel supplies brought by Russia into the field of battle. This seven-year period is significant in that it's the same amount of time given in the scriptures for the tribulation period. Where is the church during this seven-year period? We're in heaven. We're enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb where we are rewarded for what we've done in the body. <laughs> uh, we're receiving our rewards, the judgment seat of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, it's also the period of time that separates the fulfillment of the Ezekiel 38 and 39 from the Battle of Armageddon. Armageddon takes place on the final day of the tribulation period. So that you can distinguish between these two battles, he points out that the scripture says the Battle of Armageddon is fought in the plains of Megiddo outside of Jerusalem. The Battle of Armageddon is fought between the Antichrist and its armies uh, and the Lord Jesus Christ and his heavenly host. The difference between the two battles, and I have a reason for reading you this. After Armageddon, Jesus sets up a kingdom here on the earth for a thousand years. So there are marked differences between these two battles. He calls it God's conquest of Russia. The dead in Christ are raised up, meet the Lord in the air, then World War III takes place. The prophesied event of World War III is at the beginning of the tribulation, some, some seven years before Armageddon. Now, in May of 2018, Jeannie and I were in Jerusalem uh, for the dedication of the U.S. Embassy. We were able to go over to Haifa to one of Israel's seaports. And I served two years in the Navy on two different warships at sea, and I was very interested. I didn't know Israel had a navy, but they do. And they have what are called frigates. They're about three-quarter size of our U.S. American destroyers. I was on a destroyer. I was able to go aboard ship. I was able to talk to the captain. And I said, uh, why does Israel need a navy? He looked at me and said, because Russia, now listen to this. This was just last year, uh, 2018. He said, because Russia is looking for soft water ports to invade Israel. 
<laughs> I mean, this is, this is biblical prophecy coming to real life. And he said, we have to protect our ports. Now, these frigates are armed with much more uh, munitions than we had on our World War II retrofitted destroyers. I mean, these, these things have got guided missiles on them. I mean, they've got high-tech stuff. And I also learned that Russia had built bases in Syria just north of Israel's border. So Russia is already in the northern part over the border from Israel. We were on the Golan Heights, the Gaza Strip. We saw the Iron Dome that protects the Israelis from the missiles that are shot uh, from, uh, from Syria. Russia's already got a base in southern Syria, north of Israel's border. Uh, Israel's navy is protecting their soft water ports. They are, as we used to say, locked and loaded, ready for the invasion of Russia to come into the nation of Israel. Now, we're in a little sliver of time, a little window, if you please. Don't let this virus thing totally occupy your every waking minute. Yeah. Keep the big picture in mind. Yeah. This is just a distraction. You say, but yeah, but Pastor Caldwell, 300 people have already died. Hey, in other plagues and flu and all the things that have happened around the world over the centuries, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people have died. 3,000 people died on 9-11 uh, one, one hour, one one shot at the Twin Towers. And don't let Satan blow this up. Do what you can to protect yourself, your family. Don't be stupid. Uh, don't be presumptuous or foolish. But don't fear. And don't let this thing sh uh, shift your focus on something that is going to pass. Yes. I, I get real tickled and I also get blessed. Now, you may not like President Trump. That's your privilege. You can hate if you want to, but it'll, it'll hurt you. It'll cost you in the long run. But I get so tickled. And he is bombarded. Can you imagine what that man has to deal with every day? He is bombarded uh, with all kinds of stuff. And every time they take a shot at him, he just sloughs it off and goes on. The other day, there was a reporter that was kind of being a little smart at it and, and said, where do you get off calling this a China virus? said, isn't that racist? He said, no, it's not racist. It came from China. <laughs> I mean, we, you, you need to pray for your president, yeah. but you better thank God that he's a man of the economy and he knows what to do. It doesn't mean he does everything right. You may not like the way he talks or tweets or whatever, but he is our leader, and we pray for him. He's the one at the helm. He's the one, and he declared himself the other day as a wartime president, or today, a wartime president. Uh, you know, we grew up, during the World War II uh, period. Uh, I served in the Navy at uh, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba incident. Uh, my generation fought in Vietnam. I'm, we, we see what war has done. We're in a war right now, but it's not a war with flesh and blood. It's a war of the spirit. And we know that Satan is behind every bit of this. And there's a bigger picture here is what I'm trying to say. It's not just about viruses and the economy and all. It's about the end time. It's about the coming of the Lord. And we have a responsibility now to stand fast yes. and not 
move off of our faith and to witness to people, to tell people what we know, what we believe. And you can't do that if you're feared. You can't do that if you're afraid. You've got to have confidence in the Word of God. You've got to know that God's going to take care of you. <laughs> and then you can pray for people and take care of them. You can demonstrate the love of God. You ought to uh, not stop your giving to your church, to your ministries, to support. You need to keep investing in, in them because all this is going to pass. And then you're going to have a harvest coming to you, yeah. a hundredfold. Need to keep praying for people, keep loving people, keep preaching. Don't stop, don't compromise anything. If anything, preach louder, uh, preach harder, uh, preach more often. Uh, this is the, the time that we're in. So I want to encourage you today uh, don't give place to the spirit of fear, don't give place to that virus, run it out of your house, out of your family. And don't give place to the fear where the economy is concerned. And if you can't watch the news programs uh, without getting fearful or upset, then don't watch them. I mean, I'm not here to plug VTN, but we have two news programs every day that are spirit-filled, uplifting, 700 Club in the morning, CBN News at night, and you can get the information you need, but you don't get all the fear uh, that goes with it. So let me pray for you right now. Wherever you're watching, at home, a hotel, uh, you know, uh, wh wherever you're watching, you may be in your pajamas on the couch or in bed, you know, but you can deal with the spirit of fear. Yes. And I want you to deal with it right now. Father, in the name of Jesus, I command the spirit of fear to loose the people of God. Loose them and let them go. Come out in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit for delivering them and setting them free. And Father, if anybody has tested positive for the uh, coronavirus, I come against that virus. I remind you that Jesus' blood healed the host, healed the person. You have no right in that body. I proclaim Romans 8, 1 and 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus makes them free from the law of sin and death. Yeah. So virus, you die and come out of that body. Loose that body. That's not your host. That's not your body. That's the body of Christ. Loose it and let it go. Fear of finances. I command you to leave the people. Loose their purse strings. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for ministering to all that are watching tonight, wherever they may be, giving them confidence encouragement cause their faith to rise up in the name of Jesus I pray amen hallelujah thank you pastor Michelle is there anything else that you want to uh, say oh oh let me let me have I got time I want to deal with one more thing go over to Isaiah I wrote myself a note and I stuck it on a sticky note here Isaiah let, listen to this Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah chapter 59. Now, I know some have changed the punctuation, and I guess that's okay. They can do what they want to do. Isaiah 59, verse 19. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west, his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in, now this is, this is who we're dealing with, the enemy. He won't wrestle against flesh and blood, against principalities, powers 
the rulers of the darkness of this world and wicked spirits. When the enemy comes in like a flood. Now, here's the way I interpret this. You can interpret it any way you want to. The enemy has never been a flood. He can't be a flood. Because a flood is uncontainable. You can contain a trickle, a stream, a river, but you cannot contain a flood. The enemy comes in like a flood. There's a companion scripture over in Peter where it says the devil is as a roaring lion. He's not a lion, but he tries to make you think he's a lion. The same way here. The virus comes in like a flood. President Trump, when they were asked, of course a lot of people won't blame him for all of this and not doing enough and blah, blah, blah. But blame him for this. He said, we were caught unawares. At least he was honest about it. We were. We weren't able to handle something. We weren't expecting it. The enemy comes in like a flood. Now, you can debate all day and all night about what caused it and what opened the door. And we shouldn't have done this. And we're killing babies. And uh, we've endorsed the homosexual agenda. And all of those things have their recompense of reward. Granted, the Bible says that. We've been ungodly. We've not done what we should have done. America's, you know, faltering and sinful and so forth. You can, you can surmise all of that. But the Bible says when the enemy comes in like a flood, that's what the virus has done. It's come in like a flood. Yes. Overwhelming. The Spirit of the Lord yes. Yes. shall lift up or put him to flight lift up a standard against him. Now, the standard is this word. The standard is the blood of Jesus. The standard is the word of God, the name of Jesus, the body of Christ. The standard is going to have to stand up. When I was in the Navy, we flew the standard aboard ship. The standard is the American flag. And we flew it on the fantail of the ship. It never came down. We through it all the time when we were steaming, when we were in port. Uh, you know, if you read the book of Revelations, when Jesus comes back riding a white horse, he is a standard bearer. And he is going to be our standard bearer forever. And the blood that he shed is the standard that we set against those demon spirits. So when the enemy comes in like a flood, like he has, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against them. So you need to pray. And you can't depend on uh, ministers. You can't depend on your pastors to do all this for you. You have to do it yourself. You take authority over fear. You take authority over the virus. Uh, honey, I remember when the public school sent our son Ronnie home one day. This is when he was a little boy, 10, 11 years old. Sent him home and said he had mononucleosis. Well, we didn't even know what that was. And they said it was the kissing disease. Well, we didn't, he wasn't kissing anybody. He's only 11 years old. Mononucleosis. And they told him he had to come home for uh, a week or whatever it was. And I tell you what, something on the inside of me rose up. And I went into his bedroom and I said, you are not staying home for a week or a day. In the name of Jesus, you are the healed. I laid hands on him, prayed for him. And I told him the next day, I said, you're going to school. And he went to school. And that afternoon, he came home and said, Dad, they retested me and said, I didn't have mononucleosis anymore. You need to take charge. Yes. 
take charge of your family, your church, your business, your school, whatever it is. <laughs> Hallelujah. So when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard. Amen. Amen. Praise God. I'll turn it back over to you. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change those things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Our speaker is from coming from Rolling Hills, North New Mexico, speaking at the 51st South Cal Convention in San Diego in 2001. Enjoy Annie D, please. Oops. Hi, everybody. My name is Annie Daniels, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi. And, um... I'd like to thank the committee for uh, asking me to speak tonight for the courage, I guess, especially after eating. And um, I, um, it really is an honor and a privilege to um, participate in other, with others in the common solution we have here. I, um, it's really great to see a lot of people from my old home group, uh, Bellflower Big Book Group. We were there. 10 or 12 years <laughs> it's great to see a lot of old friends see now if I drank this would be the time <laughs> this is uh, exactly the time uh, thing is I wouldn't have this dress on after about 10 minutes and I <laughs> and I wouldn't be standing down here I'd be up there so <laughs> Like my sponsor says, think it through, girl. <laughs> so uh, I, I'd really like to, to welcome the newcomers. I, uh, I think it's wonderful that you're here. I, I think it's a little bit probably scary, too, and overwhelming if this is your first meeting or one of your first meetings, but I just hope you stay while you're here. I uh, Hang in there, Tim. I, um, when I was new... I clearly remember sitting in the front row of the meeting, whatever meeting it was at my home group, wherever that was. I was in a fog for a long time. But I remember clearly sitting there, and I knew I had a 20 or 30 stitches through my scalp and uh, two black eyes. Um, I had a weird taste in my mouth for months, and uh, I didn't smell that great. I had on my last pair of jeans, which really belonged to my brother, who was... 11 years younger, I had no idea where most of my clothes were. And uh, I was bruised and battered, but I was the happiest I had been in a long, long time. Because uh, for some reason, unbeknownst to, to me, well, through a series of events that I'll soon tell you about, I, I had uh, somehow become willing to do whatever it took. And my battle cry had always been, Number one, my case is different. And number two, but you don't understand. You know, I was so terminally unique. And um, that was the story of my life. And um, I went from there to sitting in the front row of that meeting. And I was just so grateful to be sober. And um, I'm still grateful today. And I hope I never forget what that, that was like. Um, I, uh, I got to tell you, I... 
I was never right. I um, I come from a really nice family, a, a good uh, alcoholic family, normal. Um, nice people. My uh, father is a professor, retired, and he is uh, brilliant. And my mother's quite quite educated too. We're all college graduates. Go figure that one. I'm a good cheater, but um, uh, we, he's a professor, and, and later in life, my dad decided to go back to school and get uh, his second or third PhD, and, and I also come from a long line of um, ministers and um, very religious, scholarly people, and, and in this church, the way I grew up, um, it, it wasn't okay to drink, my dad would say. You know, the scriptures as we see them, will show you that as they do at church, it's really not okay to drink. But I have this keen intellectual understanding of it, and I think really it's okay in my case as long as we don't tell anybody. And um, I so understand that. You know, uh, he was protecting his right to drink, and um, he could explain anything away. I have uh, my mother uh, grew as we do to protect him and and never you know just well protected his drinking um our the alcoholism in my home was like having a huge pink elephant in the middle of, of the living room uh you know it, you do not talk about it in fact you don't talk about anything negative if you're not talking about it it doesn't exist and that's the way it was in my house um i have a older sister who uh care less about drinking um, and my little brother is a was is 11 years younger, like I said before, and he he's not a drinker either. They're they're both kind of brainiacs, and um, uh, then there's me. <laughs> and my first memories of uh, that I have at all really are fear are surrounded with fear. All I remember is being just fearful of everybody, everything from an early age. And my mother always would say, you know, she just ain't right, that one. She's uh, she's a little off. She's, uh, I don't know, she's so insecure, but she says, but I just give her a lot of extra love. You know, she intuitively knew to do that. And when they let me off to go to school that first day, I was not just uh, scared, but I, I just can't explain the, the terror. I remember it today. And I, it was all that self-centered fear talks about in the book from an early age. I mean, I had it from the get-go. I needed a, I needed some uh, vodka in that thermos that first uh, year. I, um, I could not. I just knew I looked wrong. I had the wrong thing on. I had the wrong thing in my lunch. And I was terrified. And um, that's just that those are my memories. I mean, I had a great childhood, a lot of fun. Um that uh, we just kept stepping over that elephant at home, and 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 we went along fine. And uh, there was a lot of love in my family. I could not stand that father of mine, though. Uh, I just couldn't understand his uh, his the way he would rationalize things. I just didn't get it. And uh, isn't it funny how you become what you hate sometimes? And I um, I. I didn't really like to drink. I snuck out of windows all the time in high school and, and uh, went out with my friends and they partied, but I was really afraid of alcohol. After all, look what it, look what had happened in my home. And um, But this one time, the, one of my girlfriends called and said, you know, these cute guys from college are, are going to this party and they've invited us and they have their own apartment. And, 
and do you want to go? And I thought, well, yeah, I don't know how old I was, high school, junior high. And uh, so <laughs> we, uh, we went to this party, and for some reason this one night, I decided uh, to go ahead and, and drink. And um, they were serving 151 rum and coke. And um, they weren't very dark drinks, if you know what I'm saying. Um, so I went ahead and had a couple of stiff ones, drinks that is. And um, uh, I immediately felt at ease. I had a sense of ease and comfort that I tried to, uh, that, that was my goal from then on. I absolutely thought things were wonderful. My um, black and white world turned to technicolor. The fear melted off of me, and um, um, I had the illusion that everything was okay, and I didn't care if it wasn't. Um, it just took away all that uh, alcoholism. <laughs> it took away the, uh, it just, it was my cure. Alcohol had started to do then what, what uh, AA does for me today. I, um, I stuck in it, you know, I just continued to drink it every chance I could like we do and had a great time and went out partying and um, nothing really happened till high school. And then when I was in high school, I uh, was at a girlfriend's house and we were drinking out of her dad's bar. And uh, on the way home in a blackout, I totaled um, the car, my parents' car. And um, my dad was unavailable when the police called. But uh, my mother came, and um, it, what this did to the family was they were mortified, absolutely mortified, because what would everybody think? What are the people at church going to think? What are our friends going to think? It was, uh, you know, it was a devastation for the family. I had really, uh, I had really, you know, done the wrong thing. But uh, years went by. I went to college, and, and I was sort of glad to get out of the house, and I went to this... Uh, uh, religious-based university. After all, I had to do what I was, uh, I had to please my parents, and, and my dad taught there, and I got free tuition, and that always helped. And I joined the Christian sororities and did that, and then as soon as those meetings were over, I went right to the dorm room and did a head dive into the closet, and I got my bottle and went out with those friends. And so I, I started drinking, and, and uh, you know, already life was, the drinking was becoming a lot of work back then. I drank uh, whenever I had a chance. I, I don't know how I studied and drank, and, and then I had a couple of jobs in college, and and the drinking picked up. And, and one of these jobs I had was at a restaurant on Coast Highway. It was a real fancy restaurant, and uh, I was a, uh, a cocktail waitress. Of course, I told my parents I'm a hostess. And uh, it, it was uh, kind of dim lights in this restaurant, and we had to wear you know, nice a skirt and heels, and, and and I was a nervous wreck, like always, and one night the bartender said, hey, Annie, why don't you, uh, uh, let me slip you a couple of drinks here, and I thought, oh, okay, so uh, a couple of drinks, and it was like, oh, look at this place, it's beautiful, <laughs> and look at these customers they're fantastic i love this job you know it changed everything and um unfortunately for me once i seemed like once i did something drinking i was afraid to ever do it sober again 
it was just my deal. And um, I would go in that walk-in refrigerator. We carried a tray, and we had a cup and with our own garnishes, and we had to replenish those. And <laughs> I'd go in that walk-in refrigerator, I don't know how many times, and say, God, you sure use a lot of cherries and limes? Oh, yeah, I'm all out. And uh, I'd go in there, and it was lined with with wine, and I'd hold the door closed with my foot, and I'd be in there, you know, down in all the wine, and that walker refrigerator would come out, and it, it just, life was wonderful. I thought this was the greatest job ever. I thought I loved my people, and my I, I had a job during the day, uh, in a little children's clothing store and in this children's clothing store that it was a small store in Brentwood it was uh, owned by a little Jewish family they took me in like family I, I eventually they gave me the keys I'd worked there in high school and I was still working there a little bit in college and boy I was busy and um, uh, they, they really trusted me as soon, sooner or later they just let me open the store and, and uh, then I found out you know little drink in there was kind of fun too or actually it made everything more pleasant and then I started discovering the cure for the hangover was a little alcohol and I would hide a bottle in the back of the toilet and then I discovered uh, what a big shot I could be if I could steal some of those clothes and sell them in, uh, at, at school and uh, and steal and, and it just uh, things started spiraling I just started uh for no no real reason, stealing and drinking, and I, I still had that job though, and and the drinking just started to get worse. I'd lived my first two years in college in the dormitories. In the second two years, we had an, we lived in a house on Coast Highway with four girls, and by now I'm hiding a bottle in the back of my trunk of my car and under the bed and in the closet, and um, I discovered a. You know, the, like I said, the cure for the hangover was a little booze in the morning, and then uh, uh, as soon as classes were over, and I started getting into some trouble and the blackouts, and uh, about uh, somewhere in my senior year of college, one of my, or some of my friends came to me, and, and these were good friends. They're still friends today, and they really cared about me, and they said, uh, Annie, um, we think you have a problem with alcohol. And I was devastated because you don't understand. If you had the family I have, and how dare they say it out loud? You know, this is something you don't talk about. I was just mortified. I, I you know, I was like, if you had the father I have, and if you live the life I have, and I think I, my emotions are more deep and sensitive than the normal person. I, blah, 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 I know what they're thinking. Get off the cross, we need the wood. But I, uh, I, uh, my case is different. You know, not once did it occur to me that maybe I should cut back on the drinking. It was, I got to hide this drink and it, I've got to be more careful. And I stood, drifted away a little from them and and I, I thought, I don't know about any of you guys, but I thought I'd never sleep again in my life without drinking. I don't think I went to sleep. I think I passed out. And uh, <laughs> I thought, well, you know, some of my buddies smoke that dope. And they say that makes helps them sleep. Well, you know, so I, I bought some of that and um, smoked a joint. And I just could not wait for that to wear off so I could have that, that drink. You know, it just did not work. I was not into it. I needed my drink, my alcohol. 
and uh, it got close to graduation, and, and I was miserable. Um, I knew by now that I something was wrong, um, but it didn't mean I was going to stop. I just had to find a way to control it and enjoy it better, and uh, uh, I was getting bloated, and the hangovers were horrendous. came time to graduate from college, and I went into the PR field. And I, I, I had to dress nicely and carry a briefcase, and I had to keep this bottle uh, somewhere. And I was—it it just got to be hell because before I had some control. You know, I could keep the bottle in my car, in my closet, or under my bed. But you know, I, a skinny little briefcase—I couldn't be with clients. And then you know, the, the thing wouldn't close with a bottle in it, and um, it was tough. And uh, one day, one of my good friends from college came to me. She says, hey, Annie, um, you know, I've always wanted to be a flight attendant. I'm going to go down and apply. And I, this light went on. <gasps> flight attendant. And I'm like, isn't that that thing that you serve drinks on the plane? And she goes, yeah. And I go, oh, yeah, I've wanted to be one, too. Um, so I went down and I applied with her. I thought, God, this is great. I can't do this. That sounds like a party. And so I went down to every airline and filled out my application. And um, it was 1979 during the United Strike. And uh, <laughs> I, uh, two weeks later, I got an interview back in the mail. And I thought, well, this is great. So I went down a put on the suit and, and everything, and, and by now I was more than a daily drinker. I was drinking in the morning a lot, too, but I did the only thing I know how to do. I sat in that AA parking lot in front of that AA interview and drank a bottle of wine, and I went in, and I was the only one hired out of the, I don't know how many people. Alcohol worked for me, and it worked good, and uh I was, you know, I thought I was pretty sharp. And then they said, hey, Annie, what we're going to do now is uh, we really need people. We'll do a quick second interview, and then we'll send you down to the Charm Farm in Dallas. And I thought, oh, great, you know. Uh, and they said, bring whatever you do. It doesn't, there's no guarantee you're going to get out or you're going to graduate because, and then after that, you're on probation. But uh, pack all your stuff because we're going to send you directly to your new base. You know, and I'm like a surfer chick from California or had been before I would have drowned. Um, and I, uh, I packed all my stuff, and I did what I thought was normal. It, I took a few bottles of booze and hid it between the clothes and went down there and, uh, you know, did all the deal. I, um, the booze was gone in like three days, and that, that was probably the last period of time where I spent any time at all um, sober. And, uh, for, and I was miserable. Sooner or later, though, by the fifth or sixth week in training, I found a bar right off off campus, as we do. And, and uh, somehow I made it through that training and that charm farm. And uh, they said, okay, Annie, here we go. Uh, we're going to send you to Chicago. And I thought, oh, it's really cold there. And there's a lot of Irish people, and they love to drink. You have to drink a lot to stay warm. That's the ticket. And off I went. And I... I loved it. Here I am in a new atmosphere, a new environment with people that didn't know my history. They knew nothing about my little drinky-poo problem. And um, and I was just a good girl that wanted to party, you know. And so uh, we partied. We drank and drank and drank. And, you know, 
as people will tell you, things were a little different in the airline industry then. And, uh, you know, today we have random drug testing and alcohol testing, and uh, we don't have anything like that. Then we didn't even go through security, you know. And um, my, it was nothing for my beeper to go off in a bar in downtown Chicago and, you know, I'm drinking coffee on the plane and trying to sober up and... Um, We were a mess. I mean, I just drank and drank and drank. And um, somewhere in the first few months, a supervisor came on board, and it was uh, in the morning. And by now, I'm kind of sick. I've been sick for a while. I was uh, shaky without the alcohol, and and, uh, uh, I was just drinking like I was going to the electric chair in a half hour all the time. And um, I... uh, supervisor came on and she says you know you're on probation I'm your supervisor and um, what I'm going to do it was something it was like six in the morning she says I'm going to do a little check ride it's this thing where they watch every phase of your flight and um, I said okay great and I was shaky and I was sick and I was nervous and I thought there's no way I can push a card or serve a drink this morning there's just no way I was always terrified without something so I took the risk and I went in and I took a couple miniatures into the lavatory and shot down a couple of bottles of vodka and I went out and I was fine and I passed that but unfortunately that same thing happened to me I never drew another sober breath on the plane I was afraid to work a flight uh, until I finally did get sober from that day on and and I'll tell you that's a, I thought it was hard work before hiding the booze and pleasing the parents and hiding it from this fiance, breaking up with him because he didn't know I drank and you know just uh, just a lot of work but uh, now I now I had a, it, the work became even harder um, I got where I, I carried this flask that held a little over a quart, it was plastic and um, <laughs> I, I took it on the trip every day and, and uh if it started, I started worrying if I drank too much, it got down too far, and oh my God, I'm not going to have enough for tonight, and then what about in the morning, because I had to drink in the morning, I couldn't even get mascara on, I was just, and um, so uh, I'd go into that lavatory, you know, the other girls would go into the lavatory and say, I'm going to go freshen up my lipstick, and they'd take a little tube in, and I'd go to the lavatory with my whole tote bag, I'll be right back, i got to freshen up, and uh, you know, and I'd come out, and there'd be this big sweat beads on, and the glassy eyes. I feel better. Do I look pretty? And, uh, you know, and I, I was getting that look, you know, the potato body with two sticks, and uh, just, I, it was a mess. And um, and I would, uh, I would be on the layovers, and, and I'd look in the mirror, and I'd say, uh, uh, you know, you're nothing but an alcoholic, and I'd spit at myself in the mirror, and then I'd take another drink, and um, it was just a, a constant thing, and I uh, I used to write long letters when I was drunk, of course, well, when wasn't I, and I, um, you know, dear God, why do I drink this way, what's the matter with me, and you know, the God I'd grown up with was, I was so scared of. Because uh, as I understood it, I was a failure. I was going to hell, whatever that was, and I'd never meet up to the standards. And uh, But somehow I still believed there was a God. Um, and I'd write these letters. I never once would write, uh, I'd let, help me stop drinking. It was, why do I drink this way? And um, eventually, 
I, I was starting to, real, I think, wear my welcome out in Chicago. So I decided it was time to transfer back to Los Angeles, where everybody's senior, like I am now. And uh, I uh, got, uh, I was based there. I was very junior. And uh, the, the drinking continued. But one more time, it was new people. And, and you know, it was hell. It was a chase. And, and I had some crazy behavior. But, you know, I did still have a lot of fun sometimes. And, and I, I, it wouldn't be right if I didn't share with you some of the crazy stuff uh, that went on. I, um, I, <laughs> I remember this when I first got to Los Angeles. Of course, I hooked up with the drinkers. And um, this one party, there was about eight of us because it was a DC-10. And we did this all night. And we started in L.A., went to somewhere like Oklahoma City, and then on to um, Ann Arbor, Michigan. We landed in Detroit and drove to Ann Arbor for like a 36-hour layover. Well, we, were, we started drinking, you know, from the get-go, and some of them had drugs, and um, the, the normal ones would wait till we got there. I don't know how, but um, <laughs> after doing this trip for like a month or so, it was really exhausting. It was, you sleep deprived, but um, the crew members, we all knew each other, and they said, you know, we're going to this college town. What we ought to do is all bring our roller skates, and we can roller skate around the campus. And I said, well... That sounds exhausting is what I thought, but I said, well, that sounds great, but I, I don't have roller skates. I, I never did. I, I do have a unicycle from when I was a kid. I kind of, and, you know, when I was a kid, I rode it, and they said, oh, my God, bring it, and I said, there is no way, and um, they said those three words that always did it for me, uh, we dare you, so... <laughs> Honest to God, the next trip, here we are. The girls carrying their roller skates, some in their suitcase. I'm rolling the su suitcase and rolling the unicycle in front of me onto the DC-10. So I thought, well, okay. So I, I put it in the back of the DC-10 and rolled it into a little closet there. Um, about halfway through the flight, the captain calls back. The captain who is sober today, by the way. And... Uh, he says, uh, in those days, we didn't get paid unless the captain turned in our pay sheet. Everything was, nothing was computerized. They had to initial everything. And he says, hey, Annie, this is Bob or whoever. He says, uh, I'm not going to turn in your pay sheet unless you deliver your next tray of drinks right in that unicycle down the aisle. <laughs> I said, there's no way. And what did he say? I dare you. And I said, oh, Okay. So I got it out, and, you know, I thought no, I thought everybody wanted to party. I was riding the unicycle up down all, delivering drinks. And I, honest to God, I, uh, that was normal. And, you know, God forbid somebody wants to take a nap on the flight, because I'm having a party. And, uh, you know, I was telling this story, and some years later, uh, after I got sober, another flight attendant and I were participating in, in an event where we both were like 10-minute speakers, and I briefly told something about the unicycle, and my friend Pam, who was sober alcoholic, got up afterwards, and she goes, you know, Annie doesn't even remember this. She says, but I was on her flight. I was the purser. She says, uh, and I cringed, of course. She said, not only did she ride that unicycle, but she said that I had these flash, these red glasses with bulbs around them that flashed. 
a little rope that went to my apron, and um, and so it was true, you know. It was confirmed. Um, I, uh, you know, it was nothing for me to, uh, one of my girlfriends on the 747 to roll up a closet door and I'd be passed out on some fur coats, you know. I'm tired. And uh, I, I'll never forget the time I was, uh, on the 747 we had, we used to have a uh, tray cart, entree cart, beverage cart. And I would do the trays because it didn't matter if you are shaking or whatever. you just down and up. Down and up. Oh, I was so tired. Down and I'd go down and I went down to get a tray and the two girls behind her like she didn't come up. <laughs> and uh so funny the girls. Annie, what's up? They're pushing a cart and you know, I I've oh, I'm stuck and I was in there and my hair was stuck in one of the metal bars in there. <laughs> And they had to climb over the seat and cut my hair. And I passed out for a while. And, uh, you know, I just, it was, yeah, whoa. But, uh, and it's, it's real funny and everything, but my drinking was getting miserable. And, and uh, so many things occurred. And I would say to myself, Something, someday something's going to happen. Some, you're going to get caught. You're going to lose your job. But until that day, I have to drink, and it's worth it. And uh, and I would just keep drinking. And I was so afraid that I would get caught and I would get fired. And by now, my little self-esteem was tied up, and at least I have this job. At least I'm a flight attendant. You know, I, uh, I that, that meant something to me. You know, I'm something. I'm somebody if I have that job. And... Um, Yes, that day did come, and an intervention was done on me by uh, several sober flight attendants who were members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, they had called my parents, and through a series of events and everything, that I'd become pretty sick. And um, they got my parents, they got my sister, my brother-in-law, and, and a couple good friends, and they all uh, did the center, pulled me out of a neighbor's house where I was busy. And... Um, <laughs> did an intervention on me and uh, and I was mortified I, I was what are people going to think you know it's okay I'm riding a unicycle on the plane but what will they think if they find out I'm a sober alcoholic you know and my little fragile ego I was I was mortified I was terrified and, and these sober flight attendants uh, ironically that's what I'm doing now I'm trying to give it back but uh, and I understand when they're mortified but they uh, explained to me that my life would only get better, and I'll, I'll never forget them saying that. Of course, I didn't believe it at the time, and and that I would not lose my job if I became got involved in the program, became a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I could have anything I wanted, and I may not even want that job. And uh, um, so anyway, I went into this program that was run by us. Several, uh, all the people that worked there were sober members of AA and Al-Anon, and. Um, Boy, did I shake it out. I was a real sick puppy. And uh, I'll tell you, I got out of there and I, you know, I shed 30 or 40 pounds in bloat. And I was, I thought it was fabulous, this sobriety. Because I, I thought, God, I have this physical freedom. I don't have to constantly worry about the drink. I can do things. And um, 
And I, you know, those meetings they want me to go to, you know, if you just go a little late and leave a little early, you're still doing what you're supposed to do. And uh, uh, besides that, there's only one problem. I didn't think I could really push a car to serve a drink with nothing. I, I'm a sober alcoholic, so I don't drink. But I went to the local drug dealer and got, never did drugs, got some uh, street quaaludes, about a hundred of them, just to, uh, their Valium, because... Just because I'm nervous. And uh, I was going to sell most of them. I think I sold two tablets. And, uh, I, you know, this sobriety was fabulous. I was relaxed all the time. I was looking good. And if you saw me at a party, I don't drink, you know. And uh, I, uh, I don't know about you, but when I was drinking, I, I did a little of that cocaine because I could drink and drink and drink. And, you know, drinking is my thing. And uh, I start to fade or pass out, do a little of that, and I was back. Now, here I am sober. I'm sober, don't you know? And I'm trying to do a little cocaine and enjoy it. And uh, I don't understand why it's not enjoyable uh, like it was before. Uh, my jaw was killing me. I just feel great about it. I don't know what's wrong with you. you know, I really feel like I'm, I'm coming down with a cold, uh, or maybe in the next uh, year or so, so I'm, I better drink seven or eight bottles of NyQuil, and I tell you, I got the worst rash, oh, so I switched to Listerine, and uh, it really made me sick, and I will never forget after a year, or I, I'm not, all the dates and times are vague to me, going into that liquor store, and remember the space I parked in, I remember what the guy looked like that sold it to me, and I bought that half pint of, of uh, vodka, and I sat in the car and drank it, and it was like magic, because I'm an alcoholic, chronic, like there's any other kind, and I have no solution. I'm dry, and life is too scary. And um, when I drink that drink, it just gives me goosebumps now to remember. But I thought my progression of my disease, I'd heard about it. I thought I could never get worse. I was pretty sick when I got here. But I'm here to tell you that the progression of this disease is astonishing. It'll always get worse as long as I'm breathing. And then the next few months, I uh, found myself in places and did things that um, uh, were just 100% due to this, to uh, the disease of alcoholism and where the progression of drinking took me. Um, I, I really thought it could never get worse. I had an apartment, but I slept in my uh, van a lot of the time. And um, I ended up uh, in motel rooms uh, in Santa Monica. And uh, uh, just uh, just to let you know, kinds of I, I was raped in a motel room. Um, and in, in a general, it's, a very, it's vague to me, but I was beat up in an alley by a... Uh, uh, what we used to call winos, another alcoholic trying to get his bottle, and I was in my uniform. Um, the kinds of things, uh, the, the places that alcohol will take me, and, and what really terrifies me is uh, I know it'll get worse because I've seen it already. I've done it, and I'm afraid I'd stay alive. And um, it was bad, and I still had this one boyfriend, and this boyfriend, uh, he says, you know, I, I know you're drinking. I am not. <laughs> But uh, he really cared about me, and he says, here's what we're going to do. I know you, you need 
you think you need hospitalization or whatever, but we're going to put you in the car. We're going to drive to Santa Barbara. We're going to get you a motel and let you shake it out for a few days. And this guy was sober because I, uh, to get him out of, to get him out of my way of drinking, I had uh, already put him through a hospital program, and he had continued to go to AA, stay sober, and. Um, so I said, great. So we did that, and after three or four uh, days, it's all vague to me. We were driving back, and the uh, last thing I remember, seeing a bunch of dinosaurs crossing the road. And uh, when I woke up, I was in a hospital. I had the first of many, many grand mal seizures, trying to come off alcohol myself. Uh, in order to protect himself, this boyfriend hit the road, and uh, my parents moved me into a small uh apartment in West L.A., and um, the whole family was terrified and scared, and, and, um, and by now, I really wanted to get sober. I was scared, and I called a couple of people and friends in Santa Monica and in the Palisades and that uh, I had met in that hospital, nurses that worked there, and they'd take me to meetings and spoon-feed me honey and uh, try to keep me from having seizures, and and uh, I'd get a day or two, I'd go back to my apartment, and somehow I would I'd get out, somehow write a check and, and get the booze. And uh, I was so afraid to not drink, and I was so afraid to drink. And uh, uh, I was lost track of what's day or night or eating or, you know, and I don't know how long it really went on this way. Um, I... Uh, I, I did still have my job, though. I, they'd given me every break they, like, you know, they could, and, and there were some people there that really cared about me. And uh, this one night came, and, and my job was still all I had, you know. I, at least I'm a flight attendant, you know. And uh, so this one night, I, you know, I lived in the studio apartment. With, my bed just had three legs on it, and every night I would spray raid around it. There were so many cockroaches. And um, I remember that clearly. And um, I just, it was like a survival thing. Wake up, pass out. Wake up, pass out. And... Uh, every few days get out for uh, booze or something or try to get sober again and um this one day i said you know i'm pretty sure tonight was the night i was supposed to go back to work i was supposed to do a dallas turnaround an all-night thing and uh i was in such a state of uh, insanity at this point um i somehow got in my volkswagen van and uh to show you what kind of insanity i was at, i put this big half gallon of vodka in the seat behind me, behind the seat, in this van. I had, you know, the uniform on all that, and I headed out toward the freeway in West L.A. And next thing I remember, I woke up, and I'm in the middle of the street line there, and, and I, I feel all wet, and I realize this is, I'm bleeding all over the place. And I, I was perfectly calm, and I looked over there, the flashing lights and everything, right on Wilshire there, you know, and, and my van was totaled it was across the way and, and things were vague and they came in and out and and uh a lady came up to me and looked down at me and uh, she asked if i was okay i says why do you care she says i'm a nurse i just i care she'd come from ucla right there and then um as clear as if it were uh an hour ago i remember it, i it, it sound it was like the sound went off and I looked up, and there was this policeman looking down at me. And uh, I uh, 
looked up at him, and I finally said words I'd never said before in my life. I said, I'm an alcoholic, I can't stop drinking, and I need help. And he said, I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, I had gone head-on to a car, I guess, and totaled it. I haven't had a drink since that day, but he took me uh, to, to UCLA. Of course, I had no car. I told them there that I might have seizures, so they took care of me long enough to get past that. And a nurse gave me a ride to my studio apartment. And I don't care how big my surrender is. I'm now in my apartment alone, and uh, I'm thinking, you know, maybe there's just a little something in a bottle left around somewhere just to to ward, ward things off, you know. And I look around there. For once, for the first time since in a long time since I could remember, there wasn't even any perfume or shoe polish or anything, you know, NyQuil. Um, left in that apartment and then the phone rang and it was this uh, f sober flight attendants again they had called they said you know Americans uh, set a precedent they're putting you through a, a, a detox and uh, that's when I went uh, crawling into those meetings in my brother's pants and full of scars and <laughs> stitches and you know I didn't care about that anymore I uh I'm so happy to be sober and so afraid it wouldn't last. You know, I before that, I couldn't get sober. I couldn't get sober. I finally asked for help. Um, I uh, really got involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, uh, I just... I was so, I just remember the terror that, you know, okay, now I've got three days. I'm afraid I won't get one more if I do something wrong or I don't take the action. So I got the sponsor and anything she said, I did. And um, I was going to meetings in West LA and on the West Side. And, and <laughs> I, uh, I followed her direction. I worked through the steps. You know, I had to do that stuff that I was terrified of. I had to. Uh, make amends to those that clothing store and, and pay those people back for the stuff I'd stolen, much less tell them about it. You know, and I had to tell people the truth, and that was very difficult for me. I'm one of those people, even my mother said from the, an early age, I was like a chronic liar. You know, if I'd done something twice, I just said three times, and look you right in the eye. And, um, you know, I had to start telling the truth and uh, making those amends and paying that money back. And, and my sister and I hated each other, and uh, I called her and made amends, and I had stolen some of her furniture and, and had to pay her back for that, but uh, I went out to see her, and she lived in New Mexico, and she showed me the area, and I fell in love with it, and eventually we moved there just three years ago, but um, I, uh, I, it's important for me to tell you that as uh, as much of a surrender as I had, as willing as I was, um, it took me four years into sobriety to admit that somewhere in the first couple months I'd done a couple lines of cocaine. And I held on to that secret. When I did my inventory, that was the part where she said, any secrets? And I put it all down, but I was I, I was going to somehow not, not slip that out after all. It was just somewhere in the first couple months. And after about four years... Uh, I knew I was going to get drunk if I didn't let that go. See, I got a big ego, and I know every one of you in this room is concentrating on the exact date of my sobriety, which is, by the way, <laughs> which is, by the way, November 28th, 1983. I um, 
my original date was September 28th, so we moved it. That was devastating. You know, I just, uh, it, it was important for me to do that. I had to be clear of that. Um, I, uh, I just started experiencing this, uh, a new freedom. Um, Roger and I started running marathons. Um, first of all, I met Roger in the first uh, six months. <laughs> And, um, but we waited a long time to get married. We really did. I was two and he was four. And, um, you know, I, we had so much sobriety. But, uh, you know, we'll be married to coming up on 17 years, I think. And we've had a, a great life. Um, I, I fell in love with Roger because um, he loved Alcoholics Anonymous as much as I did. And, you know, I was the poor guy. Every time we'd go on a date, I was like, can we go to a meeting? He was like, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, we we just had such a great life. Um, I uh, so much has happened. Um, you know, things went along great, and and um, I was five or six years ago. I was at a meeting and talking, giving my little story. It was a small meeting, and, and I don't, I'm not this big-time speaker, so, but it was, a, I had to speak twice that month between flying, and, you know, I, by the way, I still fly. It's been 24 years, but I, um, you know, pays the bills, <laughs> uh, but uh, I got to the part about, it was a beginner's meeting in Hermosa Beach, and I got to the part, a couple of girlfriends were sitting in the front row, I got to the part about the policeman, and, and there was some people chit-chatting back there and in the back of my head I'm thinking Jesus Christ I come all this way I'm into to the, the dramatic moment and they're ruining it for me <laughs> you know of course what I said was just to continue the story you know it's all about me you know it's always all been, been about me and um, uh, after the meeting the line formed they came up to thank me and I, I looked up and there's this face with tears coming down and uh, this guy says, hi, my name's John. I'm your policeman. And um, he had been looking for me, too, for the last, uh, since I got sober. I, you know, it's, uh, like I said, I've always exaggerated and, and lied. And, and so in telling stories, I always kind of want to check with people to make sure I haven't built it up, you know. I think, because, you know, a little more sounds a little better. And so I'm going i'm asking john okay is it, it, it did it happen like i told it he said exactly he said what's weird about it is he's had like ten thousand accidents and um he remembers every detail of that accident the direction the gurney was facing in the hospital and you know he didn't uh, arrest me he took me to the hospital and he said honey you were <laughs> not looking good you were quite the beaut you know <laughs> puffy old puffy old drunk and um he said, but he just had a feeling about that, and uh, I'm glad he had that feeling. Um, but uh, he came to Bellflower Big Book and gave me my cake that year. That was quite an honor. Um, just uh, four or five years ago, uh, as life happens, Roger came down with some rare autoimmune disease, and uh, uh, you know, it took forever for us to find out what was going on with him. He'd be on steroids and then chemo. I mean, he was circling the drain, believe me. And um, yeah. 
uh, he'd get a little better than down the drain again. But, um, you know, this program, it's, it's been so unbelievable in life. This is my family. You know, this is, this is where I get my love. This is where I get my support. Uh, everybody showed up. Uh, people were there for us day and night. I had one girl uh, that I sponsored come to the hospital with me one day when I'd called 911, and, and I says, what are you doing here? you got to work. She goes, no, I called in sick. And I says, I don't need anybody here with me. She says, yes, you do. And the next day she says, and tomorrow Kim's coming. She called in sick. And, uh, you know, just things like that and the meetings people brought to the house. And uh, uh, unbelievable. Um, you know, my sponsor was a wonderful lady, and she gave a lot of support uh, always. And she taught me about being of service. She, you know, that was the biggest, the biggest deal for me in sobriety was conquering my fear. I remember when I was new, and uh, I, it was time for me to go back to work. I was out of the hospital. I'd been to a lot of meetings. It'd been only about a month, but I, and she said, "You get your work," and I said, "Okay." And. Uh, I said, but, you know, you don't understand. When I get there and I go to push that cart and serve those drinks, I get start shaking. I get so nervous. And this isn't sobriety. I'm scared to death to talk to anybody. I couldn't even drive anymore, for God's sake, sober. This is my neck gets red. What do I do? And she says, do it anyway. Who cares? <laughs> What's the worst that can happen? And, I mean, that was like, oh, you know, it's the simple things around here that have taught me the most. I said, but you don't get it. I'm like almost going to pass out. She says, so you pass out. And, uh, you know, she just always said to me, uh, 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 God's the answer. Now, what was that question? Uh, oh, and, uh, and I'd start blah, 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 but you don't understand. God's the answer. Now, what's the question? And um, I don't know how many days I spent in the lavatory on my knees, those pantyhose I went through. Uh, she just told me to say the third step prayer. And I, I've one step at a time, one thing at a time, I learned to do things sober that I'd never done uh, sober. That's a big deal for a drunk like me. Um, I, uh, so I was, Roger was in the hospital and I called my, my sponsor died when he was in the hospital. And I remember, uh, uh, you know, thinking, oh my God, what am I going to do? And, um, Somebody else came into my life. She lives in Indiana, but Norma's been wonderful, loving support, uh, unbelievable. Um, so we moved to New Mexico. You know, he was uh, still sick, but he was doing better. And we moved because that was our dream. That was the deal. It was beautiful. My sponsor once told me, if when you, when you see a place, when you go to a place where you feel and see God, go there often. So I moved there. And, uh, you know, I, I still, I'm a dinosaur flying out of L.A. still, and, and I have the perfect life. Um, we're members of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, in, in New Mexico. And um, I'll tell you uh, briefly that uh, I, I wouldn't be honest if I didn't tell you how 911 has been uh, a big deal in my life or affected my life. I um you know, those flights to Boston, flight 77 and 11, I've done over and over over the years. And those people on those planes uh, uh, were friends of mine, and a lot of them. I just know that this program, it's so important for me to tell you that uh, because of this program, I have been able to uh, 
to be of service. It was about five days after that happened, and I was flying with this. I had been flying with a sober member of AA um, and a flight attendant friend of mine. And I called her. I says, you know, most of our friends weren't able to fly. They weren't able to go to work. And uh, I says, what are you going to do? And she says, what are you going to do? And I says, I need to go be of service. And she said, so do I. So we went to work. You know, AA has given me my answer. Uh, we went, we got on that plane, and sure enough, there was people on there that had lost family members and uh, and people who had been digging in the rubble, and, and there's been people ever since. And, um, you know, it's this program. My sponsor always told me what you learn at your meetings, how to be of service, how to participate, how to work the steps. It will, uh, you, you need to learn to take it out there. So I've tried to do that. I've, I just got back a few months ago, or last December from Cuba. I was honored to do a, a humanitarian mission over there with Patch Adams. Um, and, you know, I just, as long as I'm being of service, I seem comfortable. Um, even that, this job, you know, it's, it's, some may say I'm a Coke machine, <laughs> but uh, it's the very thing that makes me comfortable in my own skin. Uh, I'm, for a while, I'm not thinking about me, I'm thinking about you. Um, my one sponsor, always said to me, the one, Sam, who passed away, she, she would always say, you know, uh, she knew I had a new concept of God. When I, after the accident with the van and the policeman, uh, for some reason I had a whole new concept of God and I was fortunate enough never have to struggle with it. But she used to say this corny little thing like, uh, you know, God's got a picture of you in his wallet. And, um, so in closing, I just want to read a little thing that a, a friend sent to me. It says, uh, if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If he had a wallet, your photo would be in it. He sends you flowers every spring. He sends you a sunrise every morning. Whenever you want to talk, he listens. He can live anywhere in the universe, but he chose your heart. Face it, friend. He's crazy about you. God didn't promise days without pain, laughter without sorrow, or sun without rain. But he did promise strength for the day, comfort for the tears, and light for the way. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah.